Johnny, there are good podcasts and there are bad podcasts. And then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. This is episode five, films that have a job you want to do, Creed and Moneyball. Yeah, uh, next episode here. I, I think it's also, I think it's probably a good idea um, for us to sort of mark a little, um, I don't know, milestone in our very young podcasting careers. But uh, just checking the metrics of our podcast so far, we're, we just passed uh, over 100 listens, total listens to all of the episodes that we put out. And we've only, you know, put out four episodes um, at this point. So it's, yeah, it's it seems good. insignificant, but this is, this has been like really fun for me and I'm glad you asked me to do this. And so just thanks to everyone who's listening in and, uh, and supporting and uh, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah, it has been fun. It was, I still like the first one we did, but it is funny how much better and longer they've gotten as we've gone on like i was looking at the times and it was like one hour one hour and 12 minutes one hour and 40 minutes one hour and 50 minutes um the movie's got a little bit totally and this this one today yeah for sure and this one today i think this one could go long (laughs) Mm, absolutely um so the two we picked today were um and this is an example of um, what big nerds we are, fucking losers, really. Like the the category is um, films about a job that you want. And we both picked sports movies. Um, you picked Creed and I picked Moneyball. And you want to talk about like the seriously like a boyhood fantasy to be an athlete. We're 27 28 and we're still like the first thing that came to mind about a job we would want to do is like a world famous boxer and uh like baseball general manager (laughs) (laughs) for like a super competitive team like one of the highest profile leagues in the united states (laughs) right yeah not at all attainable you are closer to um creed than i am to moneyball i never even played baseball and you at least have this like combat sports background um, so maybe we should start with uh, with Creed. So if you want to go and do the yeah, um, little introduction there. Sure. So yeah, Creed, um, yeah, for those of you who haven't seen it, it was a film that came out in 2015 and it's described as uh, yeah, a sports drama directed by Ryan Coogler and written by himself and Aaron Covington. And uh, so it's for those of you who uh, don't know at, at this point, it's a, it's a sequel slash spinoff slash re- reboot of the Rocky films, the, sort of the, the famous movies with Sylvester Stallone about, you know, the famous, the famous boxer. Uh, and it sort of follows um, Michael B. Jordan, um, who plays a character named Adonis, uh, Adonis Creed, who is actually the son of Apollo Creed, who is infamously sort of the antagonist of the original Rocky film. Uh, and it, so it has him starting the starring role. Sylvester Stallone is in it, reprising his role as Rocky Balboa. And uh, yeah, I mean, just just jumping right into it. I mean, this movie is just it's it's a lot of fun to watch. And for a film that came out the same year as Star Wars: The Force Awakens to really kind of stand out, um, I think is a testament to just how good the movie actually is. Um, so I mean, just kind of getting right into it. I, I have a lot to say about this one, so um, strap in. I guess. Well, you're gonna have to um, like just, catch me up a bit because I sure. have only ever seen. 
I know, again, it's one of those movies like we talked about with Star Wars and some of the other ones. You kind of know the story and you know the names. And uh, I, one of the big things about Ro- Rocky, the first one is like 1976 or something, right? Like it's quite old. Um, yep. Yep. Maybe not that old. But and anyway, like one of the things about that is like they, even if you haven't seen the movies, the I, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, some of the knocks on sports movies that followed it or that they're just doing the Rocky plot where it's like it's an yeah. underdog coming up and fighting his way through. You get the training montages and everything. Um, so even though I haven't actually seen it, um, the only one I saw was Rocky Balboa, <laughs> which I think <laughs> maybe like universally the worst like one. That. Yeah, it was fair. It was 2000 something. Um, that's the only one I've seen. So I kind of know the story. So I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, I don't know. And I, I don't remember anything yeah. about it. So if you, <laughs> there might be times where I have like specific questions about, like, especially things sure. like Apollo Creed. He casts a pretty big shadow over this movie. Um, even yeah. though he's not, well, he's dead Definitely. and he's not in it. Um, but I, like, you know, I know a little bit of the, the lore about it, but there might be some opportunity for you to explain kind of what happened in the first few yeah. too. Cause Again, I Absolutely. really enjoyed this movie. Um, boxing movies in general are like usually pretty good. Um, this one has like the history and the um, legacy that goes along with the Rocky stuff. But if there is anything, I might need you to to fill in some of the gaps there. For sure. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, right away, this movie just it had my interest. I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier. Um, you know, a big part of my life, and and we'll be getting into this is uh, you know, martial arts has been a part of my life for most of my life. So usually I'm kind of right on board with these sort of combat sports, martial arts films. Um, but just like, just jumping right into it, just, you know, kind of getting the things I liked about the movie out of the way. I, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a badass movie. I mean, you're going to hear me talk about all the movies that I talk about on this podcast. I'm, I'm going to say are excellent movies. I wouldn't talk about a bad one per se, unless the category right. kind of calls for it. Um, <laughs> and a movie like this kind of just came out of nowhere. I mean, I remember when it was first announced, it's like, oh, what, they're, they're making a sequel to the Rocky movies and it's going to be about Apollo Creed's son. It's like, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. Like, why mm-hmm. was it? Why did who greenlit this? And it just right. has no reason to be as good as it was. But they were able to find this, this director, Ryan Coogler, who, you know, he'd done some smaller projects with Michael B. Jordan, like Fruitvale Station. Um, but no one really knew who he was. And then he comes out with this film and it kind of everybody, it just shocks everybody. And people realize, okay, this this guy Ryan Coogler, he's actually you know a serious director, and it ended up opening sort of the door for him to direct um, Black Panther, which turned out to be the most profitable domestic Marvel film that's ever been made. <laughs> so like Black Panther was like a huge, it was a huge worldwide phenomenon, and for him to he come was like, like he was like Times Runner Up Person of the Year 2018. Like the like was he really? Came out, yeah, like it, it, just reading up about him, like. He really did, like you said, come out of nowhere. Um, and then I know that list is bullshit and who really cares. And he, obviously he's not the second most important person in the world. But as far as like <laughs> relative influence, um, he really did shoot up there. And you want to talk about somebody that's the opposite of what we were just talking about. Were these kids who, despite having careers and relatively successful lives, still are dreaming about being like athletes in a way. He was like a college football player in the US and California, like it seems by all accounts, like maybe not pro level, but actually pretty good. And then just transitioned into being this like worldwide director. So <laughs> yeah. we're here like it's pining crazy. after I mean, a like, career. 
you look at him and he's like, he, he's, he can't, he's definitely not in his 40s. He's still in his 30s. So it's like, it's him and Damien Chazelle that just kind of these super young, amazingly talented directors just kind of coming yeah. in out of nowhere and directing mm-hmm. these movies that have just taken off. Right. Um, and so, yeah, just, just going back into it, like what I liked so much about this movie was for anyone who's followed the Rocky movies, um, you know, the first two for the most part are pretty grounded, like especially the first one. Um, with Sylvester Stallone like I think a lot of people sort of look at Sly as sort of just this dumb action hero kind of the counterpart to Arnold Schwarzenegger which he definitely is in a lot of movies but he's got some he he has it in him to act pretty well and he showed that pretty early on in his career with movies like Rocky like it it was a best picture winner and I think it won best original screenplay which he which he wrote Mm -hmm. Um, but then as franchises typically go as they make sequels uh, these ones in particular kind of came became a little bit more cartoony, particularly with number three and number four, because it just kind of became about okay, who's Rocky going to fight next, and you have to kind of up the stakes with the the opponents. So like Rocky three has Clubber Lang, who's you know famously played by Mr. T, and then Rocky oh, four, God. which I think a lot of America, yeah, and then Rocky four, which I think is. It's very um, a lot of Americans kind of like it because it came out around sort of when it was like America versus the Soviet Union. And here he is fighting uh, Ivan Drago played by Dolph Lundgren, who's just like this yoked up behemoth of, in the, in the movie, he's like this kind of Russian experiment. And yeah. he, uh, and it, it really much so was a kind of like a commentary on the US versus the Soviet Union at the time. And, and so people kind of like it for that reason, but it's still, like, if you watch, it's like the hokiest, most cartoony movie you've ever seen. Isn't there um, one with Hulk Hogan? So, like, uh, maybe there's one with Hulk Hogan. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't recall. I, the, for Rocky's movies, it's really like the first three or excuse me, the first four um, that I know kind of the most about. Once it gets into yeah, mm-hmm. like like Rocky Five and, and Rocky Balboa, I'm, I'm a little bit less familiar, so he could very well be in them. Um, right. But just again, kind of going back, like what I like so much about Creed was it went back to the sort of the original formula for um, Rocky, where it's much more grounded. It's much more realistic. You don't have these larger than life characters, um, but, and, and it also modernizes it. So it takes place, this movie came out in 2015. So it takes place um, during that sort of that general time period. So there's like references to like, he makes references to like the cloud and like, and you know, the yeah, technology has, has definitely, yeah, we can get into that. Um, and then just overall, yeah, the, the film, it, it just has such a clear vision. Like Ryan Coogler, for what makes him, I think, such a good director is he knows he's he knows exactly what he wants to put on film. Mm-hmm. So like, there's one scene, there's a lot of really just good scenes in the film, particularly the way they're shot. Um, and the one that I'm kind of referring to is there's a couple, obviously, fights in the movie, as you would expect in a boxing movie. Um, and so his first, uh, his first fight that... That, um, that Apollo, or excuse me, Adonis Creed has, um, is uh, it, it, it's shot in a way to make it all look like one take, and so it gives yeah, it, that was really you, cool. You feel like you're, yeah, you feel like you're actually in the fight with them, and it's panning around to the corner. You're listening to Rocky to kind of give him advice, um, and 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 you kind of get it. You slowly start to see it. Uh, Adonis starts to take damage as as the fight kind of goes on, and it, it's a really I'd never seen anything like that before, and that was a, that was a really uh, kind of a standout um, uh, scene in in my opinion, and uh, and yeah, like the, the also like it, it's not afraid to kind of 
dig into some pretty heavy topics. Like it gets, it gets pretty, uh, yeah, it gets pretty heavy. Like there, like there's a point where uh, Rocky Balboa is dealing with, you know, cancer, a cancer diagnosis. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, again, just going back to what I was saying, you know, Sylvester Stallone, he, he's definitely capable of, of bringing out some like high level acting in, in his films. And he, he shows it here and, the buzz I remember that that year for the Oscars, though, who's going to win Best Supporting Actor? You know, it was all around um, Sylvester Stallone. He ended up losing, and you know, I think a lot of people kind of threw their hands up, like, "Oh, that what a, what a robbery!" I know I certainly was one of them, and right. he lost it to uh, Mark Rylance, who won it for Bridge of Spies. And I mean, no one. It's funny, just like looking back, I feel like the. I don't think a lot of people are talking about Creed, but certainly more more so than Bridge of Spies. Yeah, and, uh, it's and it's it's really cool that um, like that this movie was able to kind of find it was able to kind of reboot the franchise in a way that um, wasn't that people didn't think was possible, but then also kind of have its own name for itself. And again, coming out in the same year as a Star Wars movie, like the first Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, that had come out in like over thirty years, um, it was or maybe not 30 but in quite a long time for it to do what the force awakens tried to do but do it better in my opinion uh, i think that's just that speaks volumes to just how good the movie is yeah and you brought up something there that i wanted to talk about which and i still don't know um i hadn't this isn't the first time i'd seen it i think i'd seen it once before but um one thing i think they did really well whether or not it actually hammers home any sort of message in the film is they do kind of make it more culturally culturally relevant by um deal like they kind of go i think they pulled ironically pull their punches at the end of it but they kind of go um head in on the concussion stuff like his mom felicia rashad doesn't want him to box because she doesn't want him to like i think she says like why do you want to do this do you know how many times i had to carry your dad up the stairs because he couldn't walk couldn't tie his shoes like had to have somebody like come in and wipe his ass and all this stuff and it's like yeah just like by the time you're finished boxing you're in he in the movies gets killed in a boxing match and um you know you just are completely used up and damaged and everything and um I don't know if this is totally true. One of the things I didn't really like about it is I didn't know. I don't know if you needed the Bianca character at all um, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you needed the cancer subplot. It definitely added some, some stuff to it. It made it in, it wasn't bad. It just like we maybe could have been like 20 minutes shorter. Um, but I think you do need the Bianca character for this reason. It's that it's kind of cool that in this movie that ultimately ends up glorifying fighting and makes you kind of want to be a, boxer and um there's a lot of the movie dedicated to people saying like why would you do this like he's got to like talk rocky into training him because he's like i don't i don't know you but i'm not in a position where i want to like lose somebody else because the decision i make in their corner and um you know they they kind of do engage with the real world stakes of um i guess not just combat sports sports in general or contact sports in general um you know they 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 don't shy away from that stuff. Like there's a couple of things we'll talk about later on when we get to some of the actual fights. Um, I don't think it ended up being a message about the dangers of boxing. I think it still ends up being like a propaganda piece for it, but it was cool that with all the conversations we're having about the damage done to these athletes, especially um, boxers and football players that they, they didn't just ignore it. They got into um, yeah. it's pretty gruesome. Some of it, like his eye at the end of the the fight with uh, pretty yeah, Ricky yeah. Conlon is like pretty gross, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. you do, I don't even know how they did yeah, it, absolutely. Um, but it is cool. Cause it like, it's not, it's, 
old school and a throwback, like you said, but it also feels very 2015 where they're like, we know so much more about the science of it. Um, you know, and they weren't afraid to say like boxing is like a brutal business and not brutal in a good way. Like there's people that are like used up and maybe even shells of themselves by the time they're, they're done. Oh yeah. No, I mean, we, we all know sort of the hard look stories of fighters who, you know, live these kind of these, you know, these very, you know, it must be honest. It's a, it's a rough life, the life of a fighter. And, uh, yeah. you know, we, we all know the story of the guy who, the champion and everybody's talking about him but then once his career's over he you know gets his final check a pat on the back and then he's forgotten and then he's right. up and he's broke and we all know that and i mean like man there's there's a lot to unpack with everything that you just said there with you know the, the concussions and stuff and like I, I we can get into it but you know that, that ultimately to me the film itself is about identity um, that was one mm. of the big takeaways for me that um, that I that I personally had um, when I was uh, when I was watching it. And there's there's a number of different ways, and, and we'll get into it. But um, right away, the the movie centers around obviously Adonis Creed, and it's a, the film is about identity because you have this character in Adonis who is from you know he's the son of this in the in the world of the film. He's the son of this ultra famous, ultra successful, the most popular boxer to ever live. And it's him trying to make a name for himself and also trying to find his place in the world as kind of we all do at, at that point in our lives. Um, but then it's also really cool because the film itself, Creed, is trying to find its own voice and is trying to find its own audience and not right. just rely on the nostalgia of people's love for the original Rocky films. It's trying to be, it's trying to, you know, have reverence and, and and be a part of that that franchise and that series but also you know this isn't just this isn't just a retelling of the story this is this has its own this has its own message to, to tell um mm-hmm. and, and like it it it, it, it travels it, it goes it, it kind of explores that message i think really well it just kind of deals with you know the pressures of expectation like can you imagine like he's the son of apollo creed like but in our world like can you imagine being the son of a Tiger Woods or a Michael Jordan or being the daughter of like a Michelle Obama or an Oprah and just having the spotlight on you right from the moment that you're born. And yeah. you're always going to be compared to the accomplishments of these, like, let's face it, these kind of demigods who live among us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I, and again, I, I've seen the second one and not well enough and not recently enough that I can speak to it a lot. I think if I did have a criticism of it, I know they had to do this because it's part of the same franchise, but it is a little bit silly that in the second one, it's Apollo Creed's son fighting Ivan Drago's son. Like I think a lot of the knocks on, and this isn't totally true now, um, but a lot of the knocks on um, kids who are like bred to be athletes by their athlete parents is that they are busts. You know, like there's like a pretty, there's a couple of famous cases of kids whose like parents are quarterbacks and they spend their whole life trying to become a quarterback and then they're just not the same. And, you know, you do have that, um, that shadow you were talking about. And I know they got to tie it to some Rocky, Rocky history, but it it is funny that uh, Mm -hmm. it works much better in this one than I think it does in the second one. Um, I think the Ivan Drago, the Ivan Drago Jr. stuff is, uh, (laughs) it's laying it on a bit thick with, um, the legacy stuff, but it does work really well in this one where it is a really cool um, debate that he kind of has with himself. Like, do I want to even change my name to Creed? Um, Cause yeah. that's part of the condition of his, his getting the title shot is like, it's all about the money and what they're able to sell. And they, he's had one yeah. 
one really professional fight. They say his record 16 to no, but 15 of those were in a bar in Tijuana. Um, you know, and they're, they're going to hide that and not, not bring it to attention. He's had one real fight and then we gets the shot at a championship kind of just based on his name and you have to, yeah, yeah. or he has to come with terms to come to terms with whether he is taking it because he's deserving or whether he's taking it just because it's a brand you can put on something and sell it. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen the original Rocky movies, but the circumstances sort of about Rocky getting the title shot against Apollo Creed are kind of similar. Um, you know, in the original film, Apollo Creed is supposed to fight somebody else, but I, I can't remember exactly what happens. He gets injured or something happens. Kind of similarly to this movie in Creed, where there's a fight at the weigh-ins, um, and they need sort of a last-minute replacement. So who do they go right. for? Oh, they go for someone who Apollo Creed can just easily beat the shit out of. This guy, mm-hmm. Rocky Balboa, who you know doesn't really have any boxing skills, but he's tough as hell and he can put up a fight. And then it's that kind of ultimate underdog story, which sort of sells that that movie. Um, but then this one kind of does a similar thing where Apollo kind of is able to slip in when the original opponent falls out of uh, falls out of uh, out of the fight. Um, and then it just so happens that he's a creed. So they kind of play the angle is like, okay, he's slipping in under the radar, but they're also giving it to, it would make sense that they would give it to a guy. It, it would make sense that they would give it to someone who has a recognized name, like a creed as uh, it would be like giving the, the a title shot to like a famous celebrity who decided he wanted to, mm-hmm. like he would probably have more of a chance than somebody who's more qualified as a fighter himself, just based on his name. Right. Um, and you yeah. and I both, you again, you especially, but you and I both, if our interest in combat sports is something we discuss, it's usually around UFC. And I do think that they're a little bit better um, in the way that they, they handle it. Like it's not always, and I know they have to do it for, for, um, for views, the biggest name is going to get the biggest draws, but they do seem like the matchmaking mm-hmm. is a little bit more fair and balanced, but even like we both can remember, like, um, was it James Tony? Um, they put yep. on a, a card and he fought Randy Couture and it was like, he had no business yep. being there. He was just a big name in boxing that they wanted to throw on there. Yep. And, um, I'm sure you can think of a couple more examples than I can just oh, people yeah. that like have no CM, business CM being in there. <laughs> Kimbo slice, you know, like he was like really cool street fighting videos and they, they could handle that one a bit better where they gave him the opportunity to work his way up through the show. But even though he got, I think he lost his first fight, right. in the ultimate fighter 10, and he ended up yep. like still with like a three fight deal with the UFC just based on your name alone. So I, I know what you're talking about yeah. where the, you do it's one of the, we're, and it's, it's funny a, we're going to talk a, about a baseball a, movie. It's a harsh, yeah. It's a harsh kind of pill to swallow when it comes, it, especially if you're sort of as into it as I am. Um, it's, it's really hard to see yeah guys like CM Punk or, or guys like Kimbo Slice who are not at that elite level yet. They're getting the spots on the main card yeah. over far more qualified fighters. And it's the the parallels between like boxing and basketball, not in terms of uh, actual sport, but in terms of marketability, like we're going to be talking about a baseball movie in a bit. And one of the things that people have been saying about the marketing side of baseball is it's so hard to get these guys to be recognizable, like icons for advertising, because if you were famous and you were going to go out and want to stay anonymous, like if you're a famous person and you're going to go grocery shopping, what would you wear? You'd wear a baseball hat and sunglasses and it keeps you, it keeps your face hidden. Um, where with basketball and football, you have a face mask with basketball. Everybody can see you boxing, especially it's one of two guys in the ring. You know, if you have like a recognizable face and a personality that comes along with that, like that goes a lot farther in, Oh yeah. In individual sport 
with no protective gear than it does in a team sport where your face is obscured. So, you know, like the, you know, that's a little bit like I was going to say inside baseball, I guess it's inside boxing, um, the marketing and all of the history of stuff that, you know, way better than I do, but I was like quite into for five or six years. Um, you Mm -hmm. do see that legacy and that, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of living up to your last, you're, st- you're always fighting for your name. You're sort of fighting based on the gravity of your last fight. Like we just saw Anderson Silva go in two weeks ago and get like beat up pretty badly. You know, they were yeah, always going to yeah. give him a shot because of his name. And now they say they'll never do it again. But at the time, right. like he's, he's 40 something. It's been a while since he won. He was on a pretty big skid, but that name Anderson, the spider Silva is going to fill the seats and they will take that Absolutely. cash when they, when they can. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like we were, we've been talking, you can, ex- you can extrapolate that to more than just sports. Even. I mean, we were talking about in previous podcasts um, about why movies tend to be trending towards, you know, franchises and recognizable names because people want to, people want to buy what they know. They're, people want to feel secure in the things that they purchased mm-hmm. in any regardless of any product. So, so if you can put a name on there that people recognize a brand name per se, you know, brand name being, you know, a very well-known celebrity who might be fighting or a brand name as like a franchise film that, you know, you know exactly what you're going to get and you, and you're happy to pay for it. Right. Um, and I, I think like when I was watching the movie, it just so, I just so clearly identified with that because I think we all kind of at some point in our lives deal with expectations and the pressures that we have to come about. I mean, I know, myself growing up as a kid um you know this has nothing to do with boxing but just going going through school for people who know me well know that you know my dad uh, uh his before he retired he was um he was a university professor and all throughout his life he always was very he was very academically inclined and excelled at sort of the math and sciences which is kind of what shaped you know my academic path and I always, I always, you know, no one, he certainly did not force this on me and no one did. Um, you know, he definitely, you know, wanted to make sure I did well in school, but I always felt a certain sort of, I guess, I felt I, not, I guess, pressure is the wrong word, but that's the only one I can kind of grab at the minute. It, well, I it's self-pressure, sort of right? It's not outside pressure. Yeah. yeah no, I, I felt kind of an onus to, to live up to his expectations and, and be good at mm-hmm. math and science as well, despite the fact that I'm not, I'm not nearly as interested in those subjects as he was when he was my age at that time. Right. So, and, and, and so then you put that kind of pressure on yourself. And then when you inevitably don't live up to those expectations because you're not as interested, you don't invest as much passion and time into it and just having to deal with the anxieties of falling short. I mean, the, the movie Creed kind of deals with that sort of, that's that sort of mentality of, of trying to, you know, do what you're interested in, do what you're passionate about, but then also, deal with the expectations of somebody of being being a famous person's um son or daughter um and mm-hmm. that's what makes this movie so good is it's not just a movie about people fighting each other it's it's more it's much more kind of a character piece and sort of the psychology of this of adonis and and sort of his struggles yeah that might be one of my barriers to the movie it's not that i don't understand that impulse but i just think like i made i made this note on your note where I said white nationalism is stupid for a lot of reasons, least of which, but still something <laughs> explain, that is... Ex- explain, explain what you mean by white nationalism when you say like that. Like people who are like obsessed with like, I'm, it's generally American, but it happens in European countries as well, where it's like, we're the okay, people that live okay. here. This is like our country. And now we're being told that we're not 
important or that we have like that everybody's complaints about affirmative action and stuff like that. You know, like they really think like, regardless of how it started and it was like native American land first, but regardless of that, it's like for 200 years, this has been a white majority country and like people call it, the browning of America where it's like people who are not white are coming in in bigger numbers now. And you have this subset of people who are really worried that their history and their legacy is going to be destroyed and they're tearing down statues. And for whatever reason, people can't handle the fact that you're moving a fucking statue off a platform. Like there's a lot of problems with like white nationalism and white supremacy. I am not trying to say that this is my major issue with those, (laughs) but my, one of my issues with those people is that thing you just said about like whether it was self pressure or something else, the impulse that you had to follow in your dad's footsteps is something that not only did I never have, I don't even relate to the the name issue that he has. Mm -hmm. Like um, I, I was at a family reunion one year and my mom's side, there's four, um, it's me and my brother and we have two cousins and one's a, a girl. And because my mom got married, she kept her name, but me and my brother have my, my dad's name. My cousins, there's one Leonard who presumably if she gets married is going to change her name, possibly who knows. And even if she doesn't, her kids will have the husband's name. So these, all these older Leonard's are going up to my cousin and saying like, Oh, you're the last Leonard. Like you have all this pressure to like, keep like the Leonard name alive. Like it's up to you because all of that, we have like these cookets here and then this girl Leonard. And it's like, what an arbitrary pressure to put on somebody. Like, I just thought it was the (laughs) stupidest thing in the world to keep this very common name alive. Like it wasn't even like if you're gone, there's no more Leonard's there's Leonard's everywhere. Like it was like, just like how, how stupid is this obsession with people's names and you know i was half joking about this but we were on a call with um giorgio and phil and andrew maybe a month or two ago and i was like half joking about changing my last name to chan (laughs) you know like just for like just (laughs) for paperwork purposes and visas and everything for vivian coming to canada and getting to pick her up from school it's like we're gonna have a cook at a huang and a chan in the same household it would just be it's just like yeah why wouldn't i change my name to chan besides it being culturally appropriation of a race that I do not belong to. <laughs> like, <laughs> As you say, like, to a half person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously there are some problems with it and I don't think I would ever actually do it, but the reasons I wouldn't do it have nothing to do with like, well, if I'm gone, there'll only be one cook it left and we got to keep this family legacy alive. Like both well, sides of that argument kind of fell apart. The cook it legacy. Imagine if that, you know, all these feelings that you have about this imagine if say the cook it name say you have generations of of a famous being famous for something like say you have generations of a famous athlete or a famous musician or something like that and you are expected to live up to that expectation while having these feelings about that i mean imagine just the the sort of for lack of a better that's just the mind fuck that that would be oh for, yeah for someone especially especially someone who's like growing up you know in 16 years old where you you don't you're not really confident on who you are to begin with right i get i get that part of it i get the pressure that comes from being somebody's son or daughter or whatever but the okay, thing yeah. that i the thing that i had a harder time with is he's like either the company's insistence that he changed his name to creed was like why does it matter just say he's apollo creed son even if he's a johnson um 
And then his refusal to do it, both of those, I was like, these are both such extreme views that I have no relationship with. And mm-hmm. I, I, I did just bring up white nationalism and that implies that this is like, um, the, there is value to people who are non-white keeping their, their culture going. But yeah. I, I say that I have no interest in, I'm not going to forsake it just out of like bitterness or whatever, but I have no interest in like the genealogy or the history of cookets and making sure that my name lives on. Like, but you look at my brother and he sort of did the same thing you did um, with our dad because he went into the military, not only into the military, into the Navy branch, you know, like he mm-hmm. has like a mm-hmm. lot of similar um, interests and overlap with that, that it doesn't yep. mean that the relationship between him and my dad was different than the relationship between me and my dad. It was just that he felt some sort of, again, again, pressure isn't the right word, but I don't know what the word is. Yeah. It's hard to think of. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not an obligation. He did it because he wanted to, and he likes what he's doing. Um, you know, but in like some sort of way, it is like kind of an homage to like my dad and yours is an homage to your dad. And I know this family where the dad is a computer programmer and the mom is a teacher. And then the daughter and son are a computer programmer and a teacher. <laughs> there you go so that's a little bit more on the nose yeah so i think i'm the odd one out in this but that is something that i did find like i i knew what they were talking about i understood but at the same time like if they said like we'll pay you a million dollars to change your name to creed like absolutely do it right now (laughs) you know no hesitant to be like i don't have like i'm not so concerned about making my name as a Johnson, I would have taken the cash immediately. It's like getting a free tattoo or getting a tattoo. So you get like free tacos for life. You know, it's sort of that, (laughs) that thing. It's like, people like, I would do that. This is a stupid tattoo. I'm like, yeah, but like free tacos, come on. (laughs) You know, it's like, you can so easily buy me out of my, my legacy in a second. And the fact that he needed to think about it, I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I guess I get it, but I don't understand for myself. I would have just taken the cash immediately. It wouldn't even have been a debate. Well, what about, uh, I mean, the movie also, I think, I mean, those are all super fair points. I'm sure you're not the only one um, who had that kind of reaction. But sort of another thing that I kind of was able to glean from the movie was it's not just about identity, but you can also latch on to, and this is something that I think the Rocky movies do really well, um, and it's just this the the sort of steady process of honing your craft and getting good at something. This is another thing that I I really really sort of was drawn to and attached very firmly to. And I mean, we've all kind of heard sort of the colloquially the the Rocky montage. This idea of yep. you know in a movie you're you're watching a guy kind of slowly work his way to a big climax and working at getting good at something. And this originated with Rocky. And I think that's it's a it's it's a message that needs to be kept being told, and in the form of movies that like like this, I think is really important, because I think I think a lot of people will tend to take up hobbies that they think that they're interested in, and then of course you're not going to be very good at it when you start out. That's just a harsh reality, and a, and if you haven't figured that out, that's a bandage you got to rip off right now. You're going to mm-hmm. suck at anything you try for the most part, yep. you're going to suck at anything you try for the first time. Yes. Th- there's this idea of sort of the, the, a genius at something, but that really all that means is a person's kind of interest and propensity to picking up the information and everybody has their thing that they like and that they're, that they kind of naturally gravitate towards to. 
Um, and I think that's kind of what this film explores is that his path, Adonis's path in the movie is to be a boxer. It just so happens to be that his father was also the most famous boxer in his life and in right. everybody else's life. And so it's just, it's, it's kind of a harsh reality for him to deal with being interested in boxing, wanting to pursue boxing, but he has to, he has this, this huge expectation that's placed on him. Um, right. And that, that, that really stuck with me because um, for me, that's something that I've always kind of struggled with, which I sort of just realized as I've thought about it recently is just, you know, being interested in things, whether it's, you know, playing guitar or getting good at martial arts, you know, it takes time to get good at it. And, for, and one thing that I realized is just the, this idea of, you know, sort of ruthless consistency and never giving up and just going at it, no matter what anyone says is one of the strongest attributes you can have. And I think it's so mm -hmm. apropos to talk about it. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant just died earlier this year and he was all about the Mamba mentality, you know, and about, you know, hard work and discipline and consistency you, and you can do you can do whatever you want at mm. that point and again i think this i think this movie illustrates that really well because you see sort of adonis he has a talent for it. he has that is something that he could be very good at and he has all this potential but you see him throughout the, this movie being trained by rocky and and slowly becoming sort of that world champion elite boxer you know it obviously wouldn't happen over the course of a two-hour film it would take you know, many years but i mean you got to make a movie here so so this is a movie we both really like. Um, it's a, the Spike documentary on uh, Muhammad Ali facing Ali. And when oh, this yeah. started, um, or when this movie starts, um, Adonis is in a group home. His mom, Apollo Creed, is his father, but it was an affair. So the mom's left alone with the kid and then she dies. So he ends up in foster homes and juvie and all of this thing. So before he even knows he's a creed, he's got this, like the social worker is like, he's a good kid. He's got a good heart, but he's always fighting. Um, and Henry Cooper, who's one of Muhammad Ali's first um, opponents, he says in the fighting uh, facing Ali documentary, he says, um, boxing is a, an immigrant sport. Um, and at that point he's, he's white and he's British, um, but he's from like this lower class of people in Britain. And I think the argument he's putting forward is like the people who fight, you're, you're sort of born a fighter, you know, somebody who one of the main tensions of this is like everybody writes him off because he's this rich kid. He lives in the mansion. He has that black Mustang. He's a financial banker with an assistant at the beginning, you know, and I think people don't take him seriously because he doesn't come from like this hard background where you look at a lot of these fighters, their, their background is their, poor or in violent situations and this is their their way out um so i know you're not going to be able to answer this question but it did make me wonder whether is growing up to be a good fighter how much of it is genetic and how much of it is circumstantial and like are you just born with the aggression and ability to take punishment or like what where, where do you come down on that i'm glad that you actually brought this up because i do have a, a fairly strong opinion on this and that's I think when it comes to combat sports in general, um, whatever it is, um, there's just something about when it when a good fight breaks out and you're and you're watching it, you can't really turn away. And I I see this all the time. I mean, again, I'll just reiterate: like I'm a massive fan of martial arts, or like it's. I'll, I'll get into what martial arts like, means to me later on in just a bit. But you know, every single time I'm trying to introduce somebody to mixed martial arts, usually by way of a good UFC card, 
um, the takeaway is normally if there's a good fight on it is like, wow, that was really exciting because you don't really need to understand. I think even if you don't understand sort of the technique and the nuance and the strategy behind it, because there is actually a lot of it underneath the surface, when you see a good fight, you just know it when you see it. And there's just something that's, there's just, there's this attraction to it. And this kind of, it, it, it's, I think it's the same reason why people are into a lot of other kind of dangerous things. There's an element of danger and, and uncertainty mm-hmm. to it. So to answer your question, like, yeah, I think, I, I think there are definitely some parallels to, you know, if you grew up hard, you're kind of more conditioned to be comfortable in those sort of very high intense environments. But to say that you can't, I, I think it is absolutely possible to be a successful fighter, even if you don't have those kind of that sort of harsh Mike Tyson-esque backstory where you're, you know, you grew up in poverty and this is your only way out. I mean, right. just using the UFC as an example, um, one of the sort of most revered lightweights of all time, BJ Penn, is from a family of multimillionaires. But he, oh, I didn't he know that. was just interested in, yeah, yeah he, his family is extremely wealthy and uh, he had no reason... And that's always been kind of, this is going to be to your point, this, that's always kind of been a criticism with BJ is he never really had that kind of killer instinct because he always had a million dollars in the bank anyways. But he was still in his prime. He was one of the he was one of the best fighters in the world. And right. I kind of follow that same sort of path. I'm not a multi, I don't come from a family of multimillionaires, but I grew up in a very sort of, you know, a standard middle, middle class family. But I, I, I still have this interest in fighting and I still have this interest in competing in combat sports and um I'd, i maybe i'm at maybe i'm like i'm always going to be biased towards myself of course but i, I don't think that uh, I, I don't think you have to be um you have to be you, you don't have to be street quote unquote you don't have to be street mm-hmm. in order to in order to be a good fighter i think you just have to be interested and dedicated enough and and athletic enough and and passionate about the craft because it is it is a serious sport and, and it, it takes a lot of dedication and i think that's kind of where that parallel is drawn where Yes, people who come from harsh environments are probably tougher and more com- comfortable, but they have to be good at it. So they have to put in a lot of time and they have to get good at it. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who doesn't need to, um, if they're not totally interested in the sport, they're going to go off and do something else that's way less painful and, and way right. less um, way less uh, sort of confrontational. But for someone like me, this is, it's very, you know, martial arts kind of just makes sense to me and it's, it, it's, it means a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm happy to put in, I'm happy to kind of go that, go the, do what's required in order to, to get good at it. Yeah. Hard work beats talent when there. talent <laughs> refuses to work hard, but when hard work and talent combine, you get BJ Penn. <laughs> Thank you. Mike Goldberg, yeah. classic Mike Goldberg right there. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the speaking to that point, the complete opposite of that is I have, I, I can't even call it a mixed martial art background, but I would say the only sport I did consistently when I was a kid was um, karate. And um, we were at uh, Canada's best karate. There was one in Victoria and the only, only other branch was in Kingston, which is I moved from Victoria to Kingston. So that's a bit of a weird coincidence. So when we got there, we signed up and we kept going with the karate and eventually they, uh, they switched it over to like a mixed martial arts um, school. And I wasn't like a physically like imposing kid, I don't think, but there's been a couple situations where I think I was just tall. Um, cause I remember playing like Pacers basketball and just like, they put me at center and all I had to do was grab a rebound. There was like four tall kids and I just happened to be one of them. Um, and it wasn't a lot of skill. It was like, there's kids that are six to eight inches shorter than you. Of course you're going to get the ball. You don't even need to have any talent <laughs> to do it. And that was really right. borne out when I 
did martial, um, mixed martial arts because I was in a class. It was like me and my brother who's two years younger than us. There's a lot of kids that were my age, but smaller and then younger kids. And I was about 12 when they said like, look, this isn't your fault, but we think you're just a little like I'm, I wasn't progressing technically because I didn't have to work hard to flip somebody. Just the consequence of being bigger was I could get on top and pin somebody and do the move, but so sloppily and lazily, but still pull it off just by pure strength. Like it would have been like a light heavyweight fighting a lightweight, you know, it's just like, it almost doesn't matter how skilled you are if you're outweighed and outreached and everything. So at 12, they said like, look, you're not making any progress here. We'd like to put you in like the not more advanced class, but the class with older people in it, older people being, 18 to 45. So then I get into this <laughs> class, 18 to 45 years old. Um, I'm 12. It wasn't a skill thing. It was a size thing. And you're just getting the shit kicked out of you for 45 minutes twice a week. I lasted about a Wait, month. You're getting the shit kicked I, out of you at 12 years not, old? Not actually beat up, but like in what I was doing to the kids in my class, all of a sudden it was completely flipped. They were able oh, just to okay, okay. do what they wanted because I was so much smaller. Like I could sloppily and without any technique still win a fight or a points match or whatever with a 10 year old when I was 12, cause I was a big 12 year old. But when you're 12 yeah. and they put you to, to, to not to spar, but to like grapple or to do some like jujitsu stuff with an 18 year old, they're going to kill you. Like <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't any pain involved. It was all just practice, but they had the same problem where like they could just do anything they wanted with no skill being 18 and wrestling a 12 year old. It's no contest. So yeah, I had a yeah. I had a month of that and I was like, I'm I'm done. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be sat <laughs> yeah. on for an hour and a half a week. I'm not getting anything out of this. It's terrible. I quit, you know? And it was like yeah. I, I, it's nobody's fault. Um I wasn't getting anything out of the kids' classes, but then I definitely wasn't getting anything out of the adult classes either. So it just like kind of ended the road. Right. Um so there's that hard work and talent. Like I could have said, like, I'm not I'm gonna get I'm going to get them one time and like had to push myself to try to like yeah. do what I could despite being undersized. Nope. See you later. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> you know, I just quit immediately. Well, I mean, I think that's, I, I think that's kind of an indication of when you're, when you can really tell something is interesting to you. If it's true, if, if martial arts was truly, you know, your path and that's what you wanted to do, you would have stuck with it, but it, you know, you yeah. found interest in, in other things quickly. And I think yeah, it's it actually an it, interesting, it's funny, it's funny you bring that up because I think there's an actually an interesting study that I either read about or someone told me, it, but it makes sense. It's this idea that if you look at the birth dates of like famous hockey players or something, they're yeah. all sort of statistically at the beginning of the year and like birthdays in January and February, because when you're a kid, you know, having a birthday that's even, you know, just a few months um, ahead of uh, someone else, like kids grow up so fast, like even just mm-hmm. a few months, you can have a massive physical advantage over somebody. Right. And so then those yeah. kids will take up sports. They get seen as being sort of having potential in sport just because they're bigger. So they get more attention and coaching and then they end up going yeah. on to becoming professionals. I, I thought that was really interesting and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that, I guess, again, one way I can tie into that is that was me in grade one was big because I was <laughs> January birthday and then they skipped me ahead and I skipped. Yeah. I, I didn't skip grade two. I skipped half of grade two and half of grade one. Um, but then the next year they put me in grade three and it's like, okay, holy shit. Like I'm the run to the litter <laughs> here now. Like just by virtue of being a couple yeah. months younger than some of these kids, it was like, now I'm the 
smallest and youngest. And it wasn't like a fight or flight thing. It was like nobody was beating up because I was a couple inches shorter. It wasn't malicious or dangerous, but like you did see all of a sudden you go from being alpha male in a grade one class, if that's even possible <laughs> to like, then just like un- undersized and smaller and younger than everybody else next year. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, it's cool to see that drive um, in people. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more in Moneyball, but I think I kind of have the competitiveness side, but only in the the negative. Um, you know, I hate losing. I hate, I hate losing so much. Like <laughs> I hate losing negotiations. I hate losing arguments. I hate losing in sports. The only way for me to survive those things, which I enjoy doing is to not compete at all. Um, yeah. sorry, not, not compete at all, but to not take it seriously at all, because the minute I take it seriously, it's never going to be any fun because it's all yeah. just yeah. pressure and stress and everything. I don't have the constitution for the, <laughs> for it. Like the, the, the winning is not worth the embarrassment and shame and anger that I feel over losing. Right. <laughs> Some people yeah. use that as a motivator. I just like, I just melt down. Um, so it is yeah. really cool well, to I, see that even in a fictional setting, f- see somebody rise to the occasion and get punched and keep coming back. And, you know, that's why these well, boxing I mean, movies are such, so cool. You're literally getting beat up and coming back. That's such a, that's such a, I think that's such a, like a, an important thing to, to know about yourself and to, I mean, one of the points I have here is, you know, how everybody at some point in their lives gets in their own way. And you hear this all the time with athletes. And I think you kind of just highlighted it sort of beautifully right there is this, this idea that your mentality, it, it really is like 90% of your success. Everybody thinks everybody immediately goes to the physical and the technical side and mm-hmm. the practical side of, of doing anything athletic. But at the end of the day, it, it really comes down to sort of your mentality. And, and again, just referencing that Mamba mentality, just being bulletproof when, um, and, and being able to kind of, put yourself out there and, and, and sort of put it out all on the line. And I mean, you see this happen, you see this all the time in, in, in the, in the martial arts community, these guys who come into gyms and, you know, they're, they're fantastic when they're in the training room. And, you know, you think that these guys are just going to be, you know, just bad motherfuckers when they're, when they eventually start competing, but you put them under the bright lights and they, they get, they get gun shy. They just, they mm. don't perform to even a 10th of what they're capable of. And that's, right. that's what, that's the difference between um, sort of your quote unquote gym warrior, gym warrior, weekend warrior, and a real professional who actually can go in there. It's, it's your ability to kind of comport yourself in the in the highest intensity situation and still perform at your maximum potential. And yeah. they 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 focus on this beautifully in the in the film as well. Again, this, the whole the whole I've been talking about it for a while now. Just like the whole movie is about this guy trying to overcome all these mental obstacles to become the best boxer that he can. And there's a great scene in the film where Rocky brings uh, Adonis over to the mirror and he says he says you see this guy here that's the toughest opponent you're ever going to have to face. I believe that's true in the ring and I believe that's true in life. Now show me something. Mm. Right. And it's again that that one that quote just really resonated with me because I mean how many times can you think of where you were absolutely capable of doing something but you ultimately maybe failed at it because you told yourself that you couldn't do it and you just kind right. of fell to that you fell to that uh, that impulse it happens all the time I I, I do it regularly and it's it, it, it for it to be highlighted in a movie like this and to have it really shown to you it, it's it's kind of sobering in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. 
Yeah, they do. Like I said, they don't shy away from. They don't shy away from any of it. I think. I don't. I don't know if you remember this. I'm pretty sure it was you. We went to go see the fighter in 2010 when it came out. The Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale won the David O. Russell movie. And I remember okay. coming home and Nick got went with us and saw it. And we had boxing gloves from our karate days. And he came home and he was like, I just want somebody to just punch me in the face. Like, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to see what it feels like. And so I put the glove on and I punched him in the face. And I didn't punch him hard because there was no way I was going to break his jaw. I can't explain that later. It's like, oh, he, he asked me to punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah, so I so did it. <laughs> they do a good job of walking the line where it's like, of course it's glorified. Of course, at the end of it, you want to be, even though he loses, you want to be Adonis Creed. And you do think like, this would be fucking cool to be a boxer in this ring with these lights. But they get into all of the, um, it's a work movie, you know, like they, they do show mm-hmm. all of the movie is, um, is process. And there's mm-hmm. two, I guess there's three fights. Um, there's the one with Andre Ward and when he loses his car, um, there's the lion fight, that one shot one we were talking about. And then there's the final, like pretty Ricky Conlon fight. Um, those first two fights are like maybe under a minute, um, or definitely under three minutes. So for a movie that's about a boxer, most of the time is him running, skipping rope, chasing yeah. chickens, doing all of this stuff that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah, about the process. The old Rocky movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's like pushing, how do you push yourself to be the best when even the gym that is named after your father won't take you as a client, <laughs> you know, like, right. uh, yeah. um, Wood Harris is the trainer at Delphi and they keep telling, um, Adonis, he's like, go home. Is this isn't for you? Just because your dad was a famous yeah. boxer, you don't have it. I don't see it in you. And it's not somebody telling him no is never going to stop him from doing it. So, you know, even if I don't have that same drive that he does, or at least that same drive athletically, you know, it is cool to see like the the motivation and the the hunger for it. And they get into all of the pains that come along with it too. It's not just it's not just a happy story, even ignoring the cancer stuff. Like it's work, it's a grind, it's painful, it's yeah. like rest and recovery and skipping is rope. Perfect and, way. Yeah. The perfect so way to describe it, the grind. They walk that line really well. It's like, of course, there's an enormous payoff for him at the end, but you've just watched him for an hour and a half of a two hour movie doing all of this stuff to get him primed for the fight, you know? And, Um, this is in the second one, um, Creed two, but they go to the middle of the desert and he's hammering at a tire with a sledgehammer or he's digging a hole or something like that. It is not glorious. They make it glorified because they put the Rocky soundtrack or the eye of the tiger, whatever behind it. But in reality, you're in the fucking desert digging a hole, (laughs) you know, it is not inspiring except that you watch somebody do this hard work. Well, that's why I think, um, you know, just in anything that you do, just kind of going back to what I was talking about is that you have to be self-motivated. I mean, mm-hmm. no coach is going to give you the Rocky speech or the, this epic kind of pump up motivation every single time you walk into the gym, that'd be freaking exhausting. And so, I mean, that's why when you, when people really excel at something that you know that they truly love it because, and that's kind of what this film is about is like, it shows that like, even though, you know, he has everybody telling him that he can't do it, you know, he knows himself and he knows that he really has, a gift for this or at least a passionate interest at the very least. Mm. Um, and he's going to do it no matter what. And just again, kind of, you know, wrapping up my segment on this is like, that's why when we talk about, you know, a, a movie that has a job that you want, 
Um, you know, I, I look at sort of the life that uh, Adonis has in this film where he kind of quits his job and decides to train full time. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, he I didn't even touch on, you know, Tessa Thomas's character, Bianca, who kind of plays his love interest. You know, the, the, the life that he leads in that movie is actually extremely appealing to me personally, because mm-hmm. the idea that you could just make a living training and doing what you love in that way. And then on the off time, just spending time with the people that you love and bonus right. points that you're girlfriend is tessa thomas who makes you know, <laughs> fast music and is, yeah, and is yeah, really yeah. cool um you know that's just I mean, like i'll get into it now just like what martial arts kind of means to me personally mm-hmm. um i mean anyone who knows anyone who knows me well kind of knows that my thing is 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 martial arts i mean that's it, it kind of started out as sort of this very obsessive hobby for me when i was in high school and it's it's kind of slowly turned into just sort of a lifestyle in a way. And it's kind of become the primary way that I and probably you and many other people who know me kind of identify myself. If you ask, you know, what's Johnny's thing? It's, it's martial arts. I mean, I can remember back to when, um, you know, I, the first time I ever saw MMA and having my mind blown by it. And I can remember exactly, you know, who was fighting and where it was. And, mm-hmm. you know, for it to, you, you hear, you hear this, this saying, you know, that I didn't choose a thug, the thug chose me. It's like, I kind of feel the same way about, you know, combat sports and martial arts. It's like, I didn't choose to, to, to get into martial. I didn't make a conscious choice one day that, you know what, my thing is going to be martial arts. It just kind of slowly happened. It kind of just crept its way into my life. And right. it's become now just the, the thing that gives me the most happiness outside of spending time with the people who I love. Um, and it's just, it's satisfying to look back because I got back into mixed martial arts in like 2005. Um, and back then there was no guarantee that it was going to take off and become as popular as it is today. So it's really satisfying for me personally to to look back and and to see that all the time that I've invested into this and and you know all the just the, the amount of training that I've done and just the amount of MMA media that I've consumed over the years, just hours and hours of it. You know, it's all paid off in an extremely meaningful way for me. And mm-hmm. you know, just kind of going back to you know you you brought up this idea that. Um, you know, it, it's combat sports. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not for everybody, uh, definitely. And, you know, there's a lot of consequences that are getting involved. And I, I get asked this question, you know, all the time, like all the time, <laughs> usually from people who care about me the most, but it's like, you realize the consequences of, of doing this. And, you know, yeah, I, I may wake up with, you know, some sore joints and some sore muscles and maybe the occasional headache after, you know, a particularly hard round of sparring or something like that. But just the satisfaction that I get out of doing it and um, and just the confidence that you get from sort of knowing what you're made of in a, in a combat scenario, you know, just the confidence that to know that I can, you know, reasonably defend myself against, you know, 90% of the people out there, or at least I'm not going to panic in, in, a, in a situation like that. It's, you know, I, mm-hmm. I make that deal, you know, 10 out of 10 times. And it, it kind of yeah. just goes back to, you know, the, the this idea of, you know, Adonis being told over and over again that, you know, this isn't for him, you know, his daddy died doing the sport, you know, go on and be a successful financial advisor. Um, he's like, you know what, he's like, that's not what makes me happy. And that's not what I want to do. So again, just kind of tying it up and wrapping it all up, you know, when there's, if there's a movie that kind of very much so sort of highlights my mentality when it comes to combat sports and you know a job that i want and something that really drives me you know creed to me is uh 
is a movie that highlights it. And then just going back to my original point, for anyone who's not even interested in combat sports, it's just a good movie. So I highly recommend watching it. Yeah, you know, like that does have a... Yeah, just even structurally, you know, like you have like the peaks and valleys and the rising action and then the climax with the fight. And it's like very satisfying payoff, even though he loses, you know, like it's it's the uh, Max Kellerman says uh, pretty Ricky Conlon won the fight, but Adonis Creed won the night. You know, you still get beat up and you come out and you're even though you've lost, you still kind of have this like you prove something to yourself. You prove something in this case to the world. And. Um, I did just want to quickly mention the thing that Stitch does when he can't see out of his eye and the doctor's like, how many oh, okay. fingers? And you see Stitch tapping his neck and he's signaling to him how many fingers the doctor's showing. Right. Did you see yeah. that? So he's got his like hands yeah. around his neck. He's like massaging his neck. The doctor holds up his hand. You see it from Adonis's point of view and it's blurry. He can't see anything out of this eye. And the cut man stitches behind him and he's like tapping him for the number of fingers. Like how many fingers Adonis? He goes like taps his neck twice. He's right. like two. You know, that's so fucking devious. <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> so bad. But you, there's all these tricks and you stuff. Hear, um, you hear, yeah, you hear about little tricks like that all the time, and some of them will some of them will make you stand up straight. That's for sure. Yeah, you made a note that you don't think that um, these combat sports are necessarily as dangerous as football. Um, I think that is fair about UFC because there's so many different ways to yes. Um, yes to tap out and lose, and it's boxing. It's either you're out of time, so you've absorbed an insane amount of punishment over 15 minutes or 20, whatever, however long it is. 30 minutes um, or you get like knocked out. Those are the only two ways out where in UFC, there's all these different ways that just like the options give you a lot of safety. Um, So I don't know. I would say on that spectrum, it's probably UFC is safer than football is safer than boxing. I think boxing is probably actually the worst. um, No, absolutely. No, I agree with that for sure. Boxing is a horrendous sport to prepare for because Mm -hmm. you're right. It is just basically shots to the head. Of course there's shots to the body, but in mixed martial arts, you're, you know, like exactly, you just highlighted it exactly there. There's so many other avenues to win. You know, there's a whole element of jujitsu, which again, I could go on for hours about it, but basically you, you don't necessarily have to beat your opponent, um, beat them up. Like physically, you can kind of make them submit. And anyone who knows martial arts knows what I'm, or yeah. mixed martial arts knows what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, like for me, when it, when you look at sports like American football, um, you know, you'll be competing against guys who are literally over a hundred pounds heavier than you. And you strap that guy in armor, he's invincible. And you mm-hmm. want to, you're asking this guy to run head first into someone like that. I mean, at least in combat sports, you're partic- you're competing against people who are roughly and normally your general size. Yeah. So, but it's very easy to kind of target boxing and mixed martial arts as being violent because it's the it sport looks like of it. fighting. But in yeah exactly it just looks dangerous and it is and it's it's a very hard sport to digest for some people but to me when you really break it down you know you're either going to get punched in the face and have the opportunity to defend yourself or you're going to get given a football given a helmet and say go run as fast as you can into that giant guy while he tries to attack right. you i mean it's just, it's just like they're both kind of blood sporty in a way whereas one kind of you know, the fight is usually structured with you know, most people kind of see fights as two people who are angry at each other and are just trying to work shit out. But mm-hmm. in a sporting situation, to me, I mean, I'm obviously, I just went on a rant about why I love martial arts, so I have a little bit of a bias here. But to me, I, I think um, I think American football, and we've seen the studies on concussions in American football mm-hmm. and even high school students, um, you know, it's 
you just look at the careers of of some football athletes. I mean, the shelf life of a running back is what, like two years. And yeah. you see guys in martial arts in MMA who, you know, have careers that go on into the Anderson Silva. We were just talking about him. He was 45 years old. And he's fighting. So, yeah. Um, you know, I know a lot. I, I, I try to look at what's known. I know a lot more about football than I do about um, UFC, but do you know what a trauma IV is? It's like, no. if you get, it's like the equivalent of the like um, adrenaline shot. They give Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, but it goes right into your oh, bloodstream. Okay, yeah. It's supposed to be okay. for people who are like dying or dead after a car accident. You give them a trauma IV to um, get them back to life. Um, it's, it's you're only supposed to take one in your life if you take any. It's like one of those things where like the sort of like the plan B or the morning after pill. Like if you start taking right. them all the time, the effectiveness wears off and it's like quite bad for your system. There I don't know if they do this anymore, but there's all these stories about football players who used to go in at halftime, get a trauma IV and go back out. <laughs> you know, Jeez. just to just to play football and you're like completely oh like God. fucking up your body. Like a lot of these guys can't um tie their shoes anymore or anything like that. And that's if they're lucky. Like yeah. there's all, like you said, there's all these concussion cases where um, there was a, High I think he's a line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is even the pro guys like this um, linebacker for the chargers in the nineties and two thousands junior say, I think he, uh, the concussions gave him like such severe depression that he committed suicide and he shot himself mm-hmm. in the chest so they could study his brain. Cause he's like, I know, yeah where this is coming from. It doesn't change the fact that I'm like crazy depressed and this is the option that I'm choosing, but get something like get something out of it, study my brain and figure out what is happening to us. And all of these football players just getting the shit kicked out of them every week. They call themselves gladiators and they're proud of it. If you think about what a gladiator is, half of them don't come out at the end, you know, (laughs) like that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And it's romanticized. And it's like, yeah, we're on the sun every Sunday. Like it's crazy all these cases that you see of, you know, football athletes or hockey or MMA, you know, just CTE, you know, um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that, that the symptoms of that are, you know, severe fluctuations in your emotions. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why, you know, you see these cases of, you know, domestic abuse cases of football players beating up their girlfriends or people yep. you kind of having depressed and crazy, like I said, fluctuations in their emotions going, you know, su- becoming, having suicidal thoughts it's taking that many shots over and over again it is like i said i'm not i'm not trying to say that mma is a safe sport i'm just trying to make the argument that it's safer than a lot of combat sports particularly when a sport like football is so glorified in american culture i mean yeah some people it's it's their it's their entire lives right so Mm -hmm. and this is the safe version i think it was like 1900s or something they didn't used to have a forward pass in football it used to just be like rugby where you just lateraled and ran it you couldn't throw the ball forward and like 19 college students died so like teddy roosevelt the president had to be like okay we're changing the rules (laughs) we're adding a forward pass (laughs) to prevent these kids from dying and yeah i didn't even know that and boxing is really faded. Like there used to be a time um, where the heavyweight champion was like one of the most important people in the world, you know, whether mm-hmm. it was Joe Lewis or Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali, particularly, it was like carried real weight. Yep. I don't even know now who the heavyweight champion is, you know, some of the names, but they doesn't definitely have the same um, relevance it used to. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's not safe, but it's a little bit of a hypocritical statement for us to be saying like, Oh, like boxing should be outlawed and it's brutal. And these guys are in there killing each other when you're paying people millions of dollars 
to kill 11 people at the same time. <laughs> you know, like a football yeah, exactly. team is like 11 it on is. 11. And I mean, this, the business of sports can be pretty, it can be pretty dirty sometimes. Boxing in particular yeah. has a really, 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 really muddy history. Um, and I think the reason why you don't know who the heavyweight champion is now is Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua uh, mm-hmm. because of um, the, it, the politics that are involved with boxing. And again, I could go on for hours about it. I won't. Um, this is a movie podcast where we're kind of going, we're kind of going a little bit off base here, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the politics kind of just uh, sort of just destroyed uh, that sport. It's kind of making a resurgence because of, you know, the popularity of things like the UFC and MMA and um, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. They do make it look so cool though. And whether or not that's ultimately a good thing or bad thing for society, when you're watching it, I don't care. Like that last fight is so yeah. awesome. Um, and we talked about the lion fight. It's even cool the way they shoot it because they use like the high frame rate, like it would look like on HBO. Like you can see the mm-hmm. difference in the camera. Like, and again, I'm not a pro at this stuff, but you can actually see that the camera they're using is a more like sports camera rather than your typical movie camera because just you can see the, the high depth. And the, That's interesting. And, and maybe I'm wrong, um, but to me, it really stood out. They made it look like it was actually a television broadcast when they did the scenes in the corner with Rocky and uh, the cut man that goes back to the more traditional like movie setup. But especially for like right. the introduction, like it's, it's shot like you would actually be watching a boxing match on HBO and they do a really cool job. I don't know if you've ever watched the show, but I used to be obsessed with like part in the interruption. It's those two guys talking about um, when it comes out that Don or uh, yeah, Don Johnson is actually Adonis Creed. That sports talk show is like talking about whether it like cheapens Adon- uh, Apollo Creed's legacy. Those are real ESPN guys that do a show like that every day, and they just made like a fake clip I for this movie. Um, Max Kellerman um, and Jim Lampley are actually the boxing announcers for HBO yeah, and ESPN. I, I know those guys. Yeah, there, yeah there's a lot of one. there's a lot of effort to make it as authentic as possible. Cause even uh pretty Ricky Conlon is Anthony Ballou or something. Bello. I don't know. Tony um, Bello. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Andre Ward is the, the stunt man wheeler. <laughs> yep. yep. Andre Ward. One that thing, kind of took me off guard when I saw it. I was like, Holy, I was like, wait a second. Well, he's barely in it. Like he's got the one fight and then he gets his jaw broke at the press conference. Um, yeah, right, but he's yeah. like a real, a real fighter. One thing I did notice was, uh, I didn't really like the video game intros where it would cut and it would show the guy's stat line and his reach and his undefeated oh, like yeah. his record. Like I didn't love that. Um, but one thing I thought was really funny is this movie is so much more slick than I imagine the Rocky movies being because uh, <laughs> you just even think of the nicknames. Um, Pretty Ricky Conlon's such a good one. Danny Stuntman Wheeler is a good one. And Rocky Balboa yep. is the Italian stallion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. You don't, just, you don't think that's slick? I it, think that's pretty cool. It's, yeah. it's funny and it's like a descriptive name, but it is such a name that is grounded in a... A time you know it is definitely a yeah. 70s and 80s boxing nickname you know you'd never that's such an old world nickname sure. so it's not that there's anything wrong with it it's just as you can see the age difference between these new guys that are all marketed well and cool nicknames and everything and then the you got the italian stallion <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of to be fair apollo creed yeah, is the, the coolest the, fucking name in the world or Adonis Creed. Uh, imagine if your name yeah. was Adonis. Like your name yeah, yeah, literally yeah. is a synonym for like stud. <laughs> yeah, pretty boy. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, no. That's kind These of are really cool movies. That, that, the, that, that the film Creed is kind of a, sort of a modernization on Rocky. It's kind of similar mm-hmm. how if you look at boxing, how it's been very, it's very much so modernized from the sort of the, yeah, like the Jack Dempsey days. Yeah, no. And it's like, like I said, and you mentioned this before, they did a really good job of taking something, being faithful to an original, but also putting a new modern spin on it, both in content yeah. and style. Um, it's a, it's a cool movie. Um, really, really interesting. Um, you know, I don't know how often I'll go back to it. Um, but Muhammad Ali was, and is like for no reason in particular is like one of my, I guess not no reason, but I have no, <laughs> I don't. Well, Muhammad Ali represented so much more than boxing. He represented much more than just boxing. Yeah. That's why. He, people, yeah. people don't look to Muhammad Ali necessarily because he's an amazing boxer, which he was, but for what he mm-hmm. stood for at, at that time, particularly, yeah, um, you know, for his stance on certain political issues. And obviously his story gets a lot of play because of all that stuff. But I just think like you mentioned that people look at boxing and say like, these guys have to hate each other. And I guess a lot of times they do. Um, pretty Ricky Conlon doesn't tap gloves with Adonis Creed, which like I, I think is just stupid for show bullshit like you see a lot of these maybe not so much anymore but all of these like ufc clowns pretending to be angry but it's all just pageantry like a lot of it is for show i'm sure you do have to get yourself worked up to hate these guys but um one of the things yeah, that really some people do. Out, yeah one of the things that really stood out for me from that um facing le documentary was uh oh what's his name um he's the heavyweight champion after le he was his sparring partner um leon Spinks. no it's the guy before that God, I have to look this up. Uh, who beat he he fought Muhammad Ali? Yeah, they were training partners. Um he Ken he's Norton? really, really good. No, hold on. I'm just gonna pull it up here. Just gotta find his his fight record. Um they were training partners at I like um, Deer I should know it too. I can reference it. I just can't even think of his name. Um oh god. This was like near the end of his career or he was the champion, and um, then like he... Joe Frazier? <laughs> no, God, I know this is taking a long time, but I really want to find it because it's got a pretty interesting um, point here. I just have to find his boxing boxing record. Um, sorry, I might have to edit this. His Wikipedia page is huge is the problem. Um, <laughs> Go to professional boxing record. And he has a long record too. Mm-hmm. No, I should know this. I'm kind of ashamed that I can't bring this up. I can't think of this off the top of my head. It's a very common name. About how combat sports are oh, so important to him. I can't. Larry Holmes. Oh, Larry Holmes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So they used to be um, training partners. And then I can't remember if uh, th- at this point, Larry Holmes was the champion and Muhammad Ali, this was one of his comeback attempts was to fight him. And they talk about having to hate each other and you train separately and all these things. And um, at the end of the fight, when um, they should have stopped it, um, Holmes just beat him up terribly. Like he was like, Muhammad Ali is definitely on his last legs. He's on his way out. And Larry Holmes just picks him apart. And he's mm-hmm. in such rough shape and he's bruised up and he's beaten. And um, Larry Holmes goes to the, his dressing room after and he says like, just Muhammad, like you've, you're everything to me. You're the reason I became a fighter. I just want to let you know, I love you. And um, Muhammad Ali <laughs> says like, if you love me, why'd you beat me up so bad? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's funny, but it's also sad, you know, cause it's like these guys like are manufacturing this antagonism towards another for other people's benefit. And at the end of it, somebody's like, 
just left in pieces and losing in their dressing room. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. not, you talked about this. It's not a pretty end for a lot of them, but it doesn't stop people yeah. no, constantly for being attracted right. to it and keep pushing. And it's like, that, you know, and I do, like we said this multiple times, but this does a really good job of showing you both sides and still showing how somebody would want to go after the glory. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I was going to, I was going to add to that. Just saying, you know, Mike Tyson is famous for, you know, just, getting in mode where he just hated everything before a fight because right. when you're in the fight, I mean, it's, you go into a fight knowing exactly what, what the expectations are, you know, you guys are going to fight each other and you, you mm-hmm. can't have any hesitation because any hesitation is means that you're going to get, you yourself are going to get, uh, you know, hurt. That guy's trying to hurt you just as bad as you're trying to hurt him. And, right. you know, the, this is one of those instances where, you know, I guess, philosophically you know the best defense is, is to have a good offense you can't just you, you can't just let a guy just wail on you because you, you feel bad about uh, hurting him you, you gotta you gotta be in there right and i guess transitioning here like regardless of how i felt about um tessa thompson in general like nothing against her personally i just thought like there was a lot of it you didn't really even need it just kind of rounded it out a bit um mm-hmm. you know like and i also thought it was a little bit cheesy and kind of dumb that um Adonis starts calling Rocky Unk, <laughs> you know, like it's oh, his okay. uncle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these movies do. Um, you mentioned that you'd like the lifestyle of training, but on your off time, getting to spend time with people you love. And I think that this also does show like they needed Tessa Thompson to be in his corner, not literally in his corner, but to be backing him because you know his mom wasn't going to be there. Um, and you do need family or something to to fight for. And I thought that this did a pretty mm-hmm. cool job of uh, of showing that, even if. I think some of the B and C plots were a little bit weak. Yeah. I think the film could have been in danger of being kind of boring if it was just training and just boxing all the time. I suppose, this kind of yeah. lets a little bit of the air out and makes, it makes it a little bit more, you know, palatable and, and relatable to this guy who's kind of going through the awkward initial stages of a new relationship. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, one of the cool, <laughs> one of the funny things is after he wins his first fight, um, he says, we're going to go, you know, party and tear up a town. And then it's them asleep in Rocky's place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just so that's such a that's such a human moment because yeah after mm-hmm. a new sporting event you're just absolutely and especially like a fight like that I mean that's not to say fighters don't go out and party after a fight but you know I I would relate to that the first the last thing I would want to do after a fight is to go to like a club or something I want to just go home and eat a bucket of ice cream and watch right, right, right. or something after that yeah just chill <laughs> yeah it, it does make it regardless of whether I think it was the most interesting part of the movie it does ground it um you know it gives him something yes. Yes. it's it's motivation that he needs when he doesn't totally have it you know like he's got to have rocky yeah, exactly, and, right. and tess in his corner i don't know her name um bianca, bianca. gotta have them in her in his corner for those times when he does need that little bit of extra push um they're there yeah. to give it to him and like it is cool that they do make it about um it comes down to the family i guess still at the end of it yeah yeah so um, we can move into Moneyball now, and I don't have as personal relationship with baseball as you do, but I did want to talk about it. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from this movie is towards the end: they're watching tape of their like um, minor league team, and Joan Hill is telling Brad Pitt a story about one of their Triple um, um, A or Double A players, and it's we'll get to that as far as how it explains the movie, but. Brad Pitt's reaction to after he watches this video and sees the story is like, how can you not be romantic about baseball? 
Like it just is yeah, yeah, sure. it's their job. It's miserable. A lot of the movie he's under intense pressure and they just keep, I guess like the boxing thing, they just keep going back to it because they love it so much. And um, mm-hmm. so this is Moneyball. Um, 2011 sports drama directed by Bennett Miller, written by Steve Zalian, most importantly, Eric's Aaron Sorkin, um, based on Michael Lewis's 2003 nonfiction book of the same name, um, account of the Oakland athletic baseball team, 2002 season and their general manager, Billy beans attempt to assemble a competitive team. Um, and I guess the conceit of this movie, and you made a note, you said, is this a true story? Um, it's like a true Hollywood story. where there's a lot of problems with like how it actually represents the history of it. But this is something that actually happened in the book. Moneyball is written by Michael Lewis. It's um, studies this team and um, I'll get into it a bit, but I just want to talk about one of the reasons why. Sure. um, Again, much less personal than, than your story, but why I think this movie is like relative, like so important to me. Um, Basketball by far is my favorite sport. Um, I do like watching it the most, but, I think despite me not fully understanding a lot of it and not watching it religiously and all of this stuff, there's something about baseball, even as somebody who's not American is just like the best. Like um, Mm -hmm. you made a note about going to see like um, part of it is just exposure. Like you made a note about going to go see like nosebleed games, Carlos Delgado on the blue Jays, $7 seats. probably part of the reason we went to more baseball games than anything is because the tickets were cheaper. You know, you want to go to a Leafs game. It's (laughs) going to be like 500 bucks for four people to go. Um, at least, um, baseball, you get in for under a hundred. And so we'd go to those games and just being a kid and walking out of the tunnels and seeing the field, just the expanse of it, how green it is. Oh my God. It's the best. Even like I've been to Madison square garden. I've been pretty lucky and, been to some and been to Fenway Park and stuff like that. Um, regardless of the history of the building, wherever you go, when you walk out and you see that baseball field, it's like the most beautiful, beautiful thing in the it world. Is. Even if it's not your, I, I can sport. totally, I totally agree. I totally agree because yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not romantic about baseball, other uh, like as a sport. But you're totally right. Like yeah, when you walk out and you see the field and it just how wide open it is and you just see the crowd and even sometimes you go in in the middle of a game the game has already started there's just there's there's an ineffable energy to uh to, to a baseball yeah. game that's live that you just can't replicate and it's good for for kids too because you get like the program and it like teaches you how to keep score um marking the base pass the hits the like RBIs, everything, it really gets you into the stats thing. And um, they make this joke in spotlight where they, they're at a, a Red Sox game and the guy is, he's 40 or 50 and he's sitting there and he's keeping score in the program. And they said, why do you even bother with that? And he goes, it keeps me distracted from the game, <laughs> you know? So like the criticism, the criticism of baseball is it, it, it can be so boring, um, but it finds all of these ways to tie you in and it's, but when it's good, it's so good. Like um, one of my, it's it's a huge overstatement to say baseball saved my life and it didn't in any way, but there's one thing that um, it did do because I had an anniversary with an ex that was October 29th. And I think the, and that was like five years. It was like, that was the, it's stupid. It was fucking 15 years old. So who has an anniversary when you're 15 years old, but October 29th was a anniversary date. And the year after we broke up, October 29th, the um, Giants were playing, I think, the Kansas City Royals in the World Series. And um, Madison Bumgarner came out 
pitcher for the Giants and he was pitching on like two days rest, which is like a huge accomplishment for a pitcher. And he just came in and he shut out the Royals to win the World Series. And that was the same night, like the first anniversary I'd had since we'd split up. And now when October 29th happens, I just think about Madison Bumgarner and the World Series shutout. It was like the coolest (laughs) athletic achievement I've ever seen. And again, far stretch to say it saved my life, but it was such amazing thing to watch. Not that I barely understand baseball, but I'm definitely not a a pro by any means. Um, You know, but having these things like that, um, cool moments where you get to watch them. Um, One of my favorite things to do in the summer when I drive between Kingston and Ottawa was like, uh, it gets pretty like rural about halfway through. Like when you get past Brockville, it gets a little bit like more into the wilderness and you start to lose your radio stations before they switch over to the um, (laughs) Ottawa ones. And if you were driving in the summer, the AM radio had a longer range and they'd always be broadcasting Blue Jays games on the radio. And one of the coolest things was um, driving down the highway just by yourself and you had a ball game on the radio. It's cool enough. You can like barely follow it, but you still know what's going on. And there's a lot of talking, but you can ignore parts of it. And like, there's something about it that is both boring and intoxicating at the same time. And I don't know why I don't go crazier for it, why I'm content just to watch like five or six games a year. But it's like, there's, it is maybe the same way you sort of feel about, um, MMA, like not when you're actually doing it, but just the way you, you watch it. Like, again, the, he sums it up perfectly. It's like, how can you not be romantic about baseball? Uh, it's a really, That's really still cool, cool that you, you connect to it that way. Yeah. And it's, again, it's not my favorite sport and I, I barely follow it, but, uh, when I do, it's always, it's like a very rewarding, like nice little corner to go for these games can be four or five hours long, but you can kind of retreat into a baseball game if you ever need to. Um, and that's what makes this movie so rewatchable to me is there's so much personal human stuff that goes on behind the scenes, but at the core of it, it's just about uh, people who love baseball so much. Um, and they're, they're struggled trying to, to change something. Um, so this is a real story. Um, the 2001 Oakland A's, they lost in the playoffs to the Yankees and the, the big, uh, tension in this film is, there's no salary cap in baseball. So if you're a team with a lot of money, um, like the Yankees, you just buy all the players you want. You have no limit on how much you can spend. So they just buy the best players and they end up having the best teams. And yeah. the thing that they're trying to do in Oakland is Oakland is in a sort of big market, but it's right across the river from San Francisco, which also has a team. There's five baseball teams in California. So they don't have the same amount of money as like the Yankees do. So if they ever, they can be as smart as they want. They develop all of these great players. And then the Yankees just come in and poach them. And he says at one point, he's like, we're just a farm team for the Yankees. Like they, they're taking our liver. They're taking our heart. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's still true. And you look at the world series this year, um, it was Tampa Bay Rays were playing the um, Dodgers. Tampa Bay, uh, they think they lost in five or six. I think it was six games. The entire payroll for the team was $28 million. If this had been a regular season and not their shortened season, the pitcher on the Dodgers alone was making $31 million. So the one pitcher's wow. salary was more than the entire team they were playing. And the thing about Moneyball is like the title is... Um, or the subtitle of the book is like how to compete in an unfair game or something. Cause it's not fair that these expensive big market teams can just come in and buy anybody you want. 
Um, Tampa Bay's payroll, 28 million. Dodgers was 107 million. They're both playing for the championship. Ultimately, the Dodgers win. So I don't know if that validates or invalidates the Moneyball premise. Like money maybe still takes you over the top, but you can be competitive on these small budgets. And that's what this whole thing is about is them figuring out how to be uh, smart about um, who they evaluate, where they can find value. And that seems logical, um, but it's kind of like, this is 2002. This is kind of a new idea in sports. Um, Baseball is the the biggest candidate for it. Like they, um, they use analytics the most, almost to the point where it's fucking annoying and boring. Um, one of the big seems thing, to keep track of everything. Well, it's, it's a perfect sport for stats because there's so much where like with, uh, cause it's a team sport, but it's sort of an individual sport. Um, one of the big debates they have every year is, um, Mike Trout on the angels always, always wins the MVP because his numbers are the best and his team has rarely, if ever made the playoffs and people are upset about it. Like, how can he be the most valuable player on a, a team for, that doesn't make, is there is there a reason for that? Like there's a stat called war. It's like it's wins above replacement player. So they compare like the league average and then they see how many more wins you contribute to your team individually. And if they replaced him with like the second best guy, they'd be seven games worse. Like he's so much better than everybody else. But then people make like when they, when they, when they make the award for the MVP, it's not sort of a subjective, Oh, he contributed the most like LeBron obviously is the MVP of the Lakers because he's LeBron, but they look at it solely based on like the, on the numbers or that's the debate. Now there's a lot of traditional baseball people who you see a lot in Moneyball that are saying like, how can he be the most valuable player on a team that never makes it to the playoffs? Who cares if the angels are 10 games better with him when they're still 30 games out of the playoffs, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But when you look at this numbers, it's like, you compare the things that he does compared to what other guys do. And he's so clearly so much better than everybody else around him. It's like, how do you not give it to him? Um, he's so instrumental to that team. Yeah. And even though they don't ever do anything. And um, a couple of years ago, um, Russell Westbrook won the MVP on the thunder and they were a five seed um, in the playoffs. That was like the first time in 30 years that the MVP was somebody who wasn't a one or two seed. So in basketball, the most valuable player is so much more tied to winning. And in baseball, it's now, and this is a new switch, but it's so much tied to the individual stats, what you contribute specifically, whether or not it has a big effect on your your team. And um, I remember I remember talking talking to Nick about this stuff and saying like, um, it was probably 2015 because that's when the Warriors won and the whole, the uh, Golden State Warriors and the whole lead up to that conversation was like, they're playing Cleveland. Cleveland has LeBron. The Warriors can't win. You can't win a championship by taking jump shots. And they win and they just shoot a shit ton of threes and they hit them all. And three points is worth more than two points. And somebody at some point figured out that it's a more efficient shot to take threes than twos. Because if you hit 40% of your threes... And you hit 40% of your threes and 50% of your twos. It doesn't matter that the percentage is higher. You get more points by shooting a lower percentage from three. So then somebody Mm -hmm. figured that out and now they do it all the time. You see these teams like you used to, if you have a breakaway and you're free and nobody's going to touch you, you don't go in and slam dunk it. People will fly out to the wing and take a three point shot. And you never used to do that. You take the easy bucket and now people say it's ruining the game, but you can see these analytics coming in and changing things in the last five years. 
And I remember saying to Nick, like, that's so half, interesting. Yeah. Half joking being like, people just figured out that three points is worth more than two points. And he's like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, no, they, they didn't. They knew that. And I was like, you're right. They guess they knew that it was physically worth more, but they didn't realize until very <laughs> recently that the percentages are a huge part of it. Like, um, there's a team now, the Houston Rockets basketball, their like philosophy is you don't take any mid range shots. You dunk it, you get free throws or you take three points. You're not shooting anything inside the arc. That's not in the the paint because they're low percentage shots. Is is there like a statistic about sort of the average points that are scored in games nowadays versus like five years when they made this kind of realization? Oh, it's, it's through the roof. Like one of the things about those, um, oh my God, if you, did you watch the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary? I did. Yeah. Yeah some of those games that they win these super exciting nineties basketball games, the score is like 90 to 86. And now you'll have really, yeah. playoff games where the score is like, yeah, they're like 125 to 113. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> they, I'm sure or they changed like the threshold game, for this. Like way higher. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they changed the threshold for this, but it used to be a lot of games you'd go to. And if it's like, if the home team scores over a hundred points, you get a coupon for free tacos. And, if they <laughs> haven't bumped that up to 130 points, those taco companies are out of business because almost every game is over <laughs> over 100 points. Like it's been a scoring explosion. And it's funny because you think like it's this book is the and this this movie that's based on the book and this team is the beginning of that, not only in baseball, but in all sports. It's like it's almost sort of so stupid. Are there actually that, organization? One of the big questions I have coming out of this movie is like our sporting organizations, you would know better than I would do sporting organizations, not just in baseball, but do they, do they actually like, is there more of an emphasis on constructing a team based on the statistics of the players rather than sort of, I guess the, the more subjective qualities of a player, like, Oh, this guy, he just, there's something about him that when the pressure's on, he just, he, he really, he turns it on like, but they just, they kind of ignore that. And they just go right for the stats. Does that question make sense? In, in baseball? Absolutely. I think, almost everybody does this kind of stuff now in baseball. The question is how good they do it or how well they do it. Um, in basketball, it's okay. a little bit different because there's still like a bunch of intangible stuff that if they can quantify right. it, they haven't, they haven't figured out how. So one of the criticisms of the Rockets is they're a good team every year, but they've also never won a championship. And part of the thing is like the GM was like, here's a first round pick that didn't do as well as he should have because of personality conflicts. We don't care. Chemistry isn't a real thing. It's made up. You can't quantify chemistry and there's no such thing as a clutch gene. And he's like, so we'll take all of these people and we'll throw them together and we'll see how it works. And they do well, but they never win. And when they don't win, people are saying like, you know, um, that just proves there's things about basketball that can't be quantified. And um, for now, they're right. But when you go and watch Moneyball, you read the book, those are the same arguments they're having about baseball in 2002 the guy who plays the head scout grady whatever i've never seen him in any other movie he's so good um in this movie and in one of the confrontations he has with uh brad pitt in the hallway when he gets fired do you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. yeah yep. he says like you're not you and google boy are going to get thrown under the bus because you can't build a baseball team with a computer. He goes, baseball is not a science. It's an art. If it were a science and something you could do with numbers, then anybody could do what we can, but they can't. And he thinks it's like 
at the beginning, they're trying to find players to replace Giambi and Johnny Damon and all of these players that the Yankees poach for them. And the stuff that they're saying, they go like, we like this guy. Why? He's um, the, the ball makes a loud crack when it comes off his bat. You can hear it through the, the ballpark. He goes, yeah, but he's got an ugly girlfriend. It's like ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? It's like ugly girlfriend means no confidence. <laughs> you know, oh like they're, I remember they're using. Yeah, I remember that scene, and it was yeah, that that one stuck out to me. Yeah, they're using all of these like archaic ways of evaluating players, and like he's got a good jaw. Um, and it's like, what the fuck does it, your jawline matter about how good you are as a baseball player? But it's like they have these things that work almost they work enough that they keep doing them and anybody who comes in and is going to start threatening that system makes them really uncomfortable. So instead of accepting it, a lot of them doubled down and you see that conflict play out in that same confrontation because uh, Billy Bean, when he was a player was like, he had an option. He could be drafted by the New York Mets or he could have gone on a full scholarship to Stanford and they come in and they sell him on being a baseball player. They say, your son's a five tool baseball player. We don't see this very often. He's going to be a success. And, he's a little bit resentful of scouting and distrust scouting because they kind of screwed him. Like he at one point says like, I'm a high school graduate um, with a daughter I'd like to see get through college. And obviously being a GM is a pretty high paying job, but if you're not a GM, he doesn't have much of an education background to fall, fall back on, especially if nobody in baseball is ever going to touch him again. So he says to the guy, he go, um, Brad Pitt, and this is like his best acting I've ever seen him do. He goes, I've sat with you at those tables. I've heard you say, when I know, I know. And with your son, I know. And you don't. He's, you don't know anything. You're just like guys who yeah. have some theory that works enough that you keep doing it. We're trying to do something smart here. You're getting in the way. Like baseball's changing. He's adapt or die. You know, and it, it's really cool watching him like a classic baseball guy try to struggle with all this new stuff because as smart as he is, he's clearly not smart enough to keep up with the stuff that um, Jonah Hill is doing. All of this computer stuff they bring in is like really radicalizing baseball. And this is the first time that they, they ever did that. Um, And it's really cool to see people apply logic to sports where it used to just be gut, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's like that's such an important lesson. That that's one of the things I drew from the film uh, right away is this idea that you should always be challenging sort of the dogma of, of, of anything. So in this instance, it's about how do you what's the most efficient and best way to construct a team. And these guys kind of come in and challenge that. And it, it, yeah, yeah, you you explained it much better than I ever could. That was that was really fun to listen to. But um, it was. Uh, it, 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 I, I, I'll, I'll bring it back to martial arts just briefly, if you if you'll if you'll let me. Um, yeah, you know, Bruce Lee was always somebody who was um, somebody who was he got a lot of resistance when he was um, when he was kind of bringing martial arts to the United States. And you, you say what you will about Bruce Lee. Some people think he wasn't authentic, and some people some people do. Um, but he was always about, you know, we can't just sort of fall back on uh, on sort of what's always kind of worked. We always need to be kind of adapting and improving mm-hmm. and finding new ways and more efficient ways of, of doing these things. And, you know, this dogma is a word that, that he brings up a lot. This dogma that used to seem so beholden to, again, whether or not it's martial arts or if it's baseball, um, it's just going to hold you back. And, you know, as things evolve and grow, you need to you need to be able to grow and evolve with it. Yeah. And there's this whole industry built on, we've done this thing for a hundred years, like baseball's America, it's apple pie. It's all of that bullshit. And it's like, it can't be changed. <laughs> we play it the same way we played it forever. It's like, 
even now they're getting into fights about whether they should let review in and whether they need to use computers to instead of human judgment to call out outs and saves. And people are just like so resistant to any sort of change to baseball. And these guys did it as a necessity to survive. It's like, how do we keep putting a good team on the field when we are like the last dog at the bowl? Like he goes, you know what happens mm-hmm. to the run to the litter? They die. It's like, he's like, that's us. Mm-hmm. Like we have such a small payroll. If we try to play like the Yankees in here, we'll lose to them out there. So they have to try to find yeah. a new way to be competitive. And then um, I don't know why the guy did this. The real guy, the real um, assistant general manager that um, Jonah Hill plays is Paul DePodesta. He ended up being a general manager of the Dodgers. And then he ended up on football and he used all of these analytical economic background to try to revolutionize these sports. He took his name off the movie for some reason. I don't really know why. So Billy Bean is actually the real GM of um, Oakland still to this day. Um, But Jonah Hill plays Peter Brand, who's exactly who Paul DePodesta is, but Paul DePodesta didn't want his name in the, the movie. Just a different name. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's the same guy. He comes in with the computer and nobody takes him seriously because, you know, like he's it's his first job. He's right out of high school. He's or right out of college. He's using this computer. Nobody understands. Nobody believes him. Um, the guy who pioneered all this stuff is a guy named Bill James. And he writes these books in base about baseball for free in his spare time. And he's a security guard at a pork and beans company. So people are like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not a baseball person because he doesn't belong to the world. They won't listen to him, you know, and it's, you see this a lot in, in, it's kind of interesting. This happens in Oakland and San Francisco because you see this a lot in tech It's like their um, Facebook's motto was like move motto was a uh, move fast and break things. You know, obviously that has a lot of terrible consequences in 2016 and beyond, <laughs> but it's funny in baseball, they really needed the same um, attitude, somebody to come in and kind of shake everything up and uh, they got shit on and they didn't win and they still haven't won. But what, is ultimately the lesson of this is uh, at the end of the movie, they offer Billy Bean the job at the um, the Red Sox and he turns it down. And the guy they hire is this guy named Theo Epstein comes in 2004, only two years after this movie, Red Sox win their first championship in 86 years. So he breaks the Red Sox curse. They win a couple more titles, right. decide it's time for him to move on. He gets let go or resigns or whatever. Chicago Cubs hire him in 2016. They win the first world series in 103 years. So this guy is like the curse breaker and it's all the same stuff that Billy Bean was starting to do. Um, and so the analytics comes in and it ends up being successful. It just, unfortunately it's not Billy Bean that's successful with it. So he did change baseball, but he didn't actually get any of the results from it. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, and I want to get your opinion on this. Like there's, I forget exactly what the, what the scene is or even what the line is, but Am I right? There's a part in the movie where um, he talks about, you know, yeah, we're going to be very successful, but if we're right about this, we're going to change the sport. And like, that's, that's so much bigger than, than, you know, these sort of smaller goals. Like for you personally, do you think it's more important that, that your efforts would change the sport or would you be more focused on winning championships? I think if you asked him honestly, he would have taken a championship over the legacy of being the guy that introduced this um, to it. I think you see, and again, who knows what the real guy is like, but if he's anything like the way Brad Pitt plays him in the movie, he needs to win. Like he's so obsessed with winning and he's, he's talking to some of these players at certain times and he says, I hate losing. I hate losing even more than I like winning. 
you know, he's just so competitive. Um, I, so I think if you actually boiled it down, he'd say like, I could give a shit if I changed baseball. I just want that one championship, you know, like a lot of these guys do any, anything to get it. But I think in the long term, like, well, I don't even know who the manager of the Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays are. And they won the world series two weeks ago. And we know who yeah. Billy Bean is. And part of that is because he's immortalized by this book in this movie. So I think probably in the long term, that's what you would want. Um, I guess the ideal situation is that you get both. Um, I don't know where I would fall picking one or another. I guess I would probably go to the legacy. But like as we talked about, I am not a good competitor. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I have the worst, worst mix of competitiveness because it just makes me miserable and I don't get any of the gains from it. Um, you know, so I related a lot to, um, Billy beans competitiveness. Um, but you know, I'm obviously not a, as much as I want to be a successful major league baseball manager. So I think he'd take the championship. I think the movie does a pretty good job of romanticizing what he actually might feel about what he, he did. Um, I would say Billy. If I can just tie this in. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. If I can just tie this into something that um, is kind of similar and along the same lines um, that has nothing to do with baseball, but I mean, at the time that we're recording this, you know, there's a lot kind of going on in the sort of political atmosphere, especially when it comes to things like Black Lives Matter. And one of the Mm -hmm. voices that I think a lot of people kind of go to a lot of times is, is the comedian Dave Chappelle because his comedy is so informed by you know systemic racism and, and sort of like the, the black experience and it's yeah. come to a point now where people kind of turn to him for you know when George Floyd is, is murdered by this cop you know what's George what's Dave what's what is Dave Chappelle's take on this and and how to move forward and what's mm-hmm. interesting is he did an interview with David Letterman and he says you know what like I don't want to, I don't want to be this guy who has, you know, followers per se, you know, Martin Luther King died penniless and Malcolm X died penniless. And like, I don't want to do that. And, and so it, I kind of draw a similar parallel. It's just like, you know, I like, do you want to sort of speak to a larger audience as, as far as like changing the sport of baseball? You know, this is obviously mm-hmm. much less serious than, you know, than the black lives matter movement, but it's the same kind of parallel. It's like, do you want to see results or do you want to like move the, do you, do you want to be a pioneer and to, and to push the, the industry or push the, yeah. the, 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 the art form or whatever the sport forward in a way that might not have results to you like personally and immediately, but mm. it's going to have, you know, long lasting effects, you know, in the, in, in the future. Well, in a lot of ways, it was stupid for the Oakland days to let Michael Lewis in to write this book because they gave up their competitive advantage if they were doing all of this stuff in the shadows and nobody was taking them seriously and it was working. Right. And then now there's this book published and it's giving away all the trade secrets, what they're doing, how they're doing it. <laughs> it's like, you just kind of blew your, your only advantage. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe like once but he it moved settles, forward, which is a huge accomplishment, right? Yeah. And I guess uh, probably more the movie than the book did this, but we're going we're gonna to remember Billy Bean and whether or not that's what he would have chosen. It's definitely a huge accomplishment. Um, yeah, either way. absolutely. Um, this, I love this movie so much. Like it's in my top five movies ever. Like it, it yeah, made I this gotta, list. I got to, I got to apologize to you because you've recommended this movie <laughs> to me I, countless number of times. And I've always just, I'll be honest. I've always just kind of ignored the recommendation because mm-hmm. 
on the surface it's like oh a baseball movie and not even a baseball movie it's about like the politics of baseball and like and math no interest in this and yeah. math. <laughs> nice and um but uh you know I, I sat down and watched it and i was just like it, this was like a throwback to me like a throwback to like those movies that came out in the mid 2000s where it's it just kind of comes out of nowhere it's just a really interesting story with a good script like aaron sorkin wrote this so like that i was wondering when you said that it made sense to me it's like yeah this is a really snappy script it's got amazing acting with brad pitt and jonah hill so yeah i completely agree with you this movie is this movie is certainly like i don't know if it's a hidden gem but it's a gem for sure right one thing i um have noticed in all of our movies and, and this is going to steal a baseball term is we keep going back to these like high wins above replacement casts like this movie half these people who are in this movie have no business being in it i think they're all just friends with the director like philip seymour hoffman is plays art Howe. he's just randomly this manager that has barely anything to do like it's not even like a huge part he's just in it um robin wright is billy bean's ex-wife spike jones is her step or her, her uh, new husband the spike jones this west <laughs> whenever when i recognized spike jones that took me off guard i was like yeah spike jones. <laughs> he's just in it he's got a nothing part he got one scene um you know and i guess jonah hill is a name but not really at this time um the guy whose uh, career has his... seemed to have panned out so much better than michael Sarah and mclovin yeah, yeah. i don't even and know Chris... his name chris from Plath. Yeah, yeah. And Chris Pratt is Scott Hatterberg. Um, This is Chris Pratt before he's Chris Pratt, but he's just in this movie. And it's like, there's a huge cast in this movie and you would never be able to afford this movie now. Um, Even regardless of the politics of like studio systems or anything, even just the salaries for the people in it alone is crazy. Like you'd never get this group of people together again. And we keep going back to movies like this. Um, (laughs) It is funny. Robin Wright. um, She's from uh, Princess Bride and she's... um, in house of cards she is um this is like her last like long hair movie she gets like the haircut like really short (laughs) severe haircut for house of cards this is her long last long hair movie and um when she was in princess bride i think that might be her first movie or close to her first movie and the guy who wrote the movie william goldman they say like um the director carl reiner um or not carl reiner rob reiner is at his house and they're taking casting calls and they're having the actors come to his house to do their auditions and william goldman's there and rob reiner's there and robin wright knocks on the door and they open the door and they said like the way the sun was it like backlit her and her hair was like shining in the sun and william goldman just took one look at her and he goes well that's what i wrote (laughs) this is like super beautiful princess and she's just like she's billy's ex-wife and she's got one scene in person and she's got one scene on the phone um and she's great and they're all they're all great um they're all you know, it's great just this, all yeah it, it's such a good um cast uh even the the bit players like the, i love all of the scenes in the the scouting room the guys are just such old school losers um they're mm-hmm. brad pitt says he goes like uh we keep getting our players poached we keep losing in the first round and you guys are sitting here talking about the same good body nonsense like we're shopping for jeans like we're looking for fabio and the baseball guys are like who's fabio uh oh he's a shortstop on on san diego like all they can do is think about baseball they have no connection right. to the outside world and they're just so <laughs> caught up in their own shit um and it takes some of these like outsiders to come in and uh kind of mess it up and it's just like 
it does. Oh my it, God. The movie definitely does a good job of helping you emote with the players. I mean, there was one, mm-hmm. there's one scene where they make a big purchase and they get a really important key player to their team. But in order to get him, they have to either trade, they have to trade one of like their sort of, uh, one of their better players, but he has like a, he has a problem with his knee. And then in the next scene, you see him scoring, a, like, I think it was like, what, a grand slam or something like that against that same team. And you feel kind of like the sort of vindictiveness that he has for the team that kind of traded him for nothing right. or, or for something important, but he was the scapegoat. And then now he's, he's playing against them and scores a huge scores a huge run for them and you yeah. feel that you feel that kind of like satisfaction of like okay yeah you, you got rid of me yeah i bet you bet you didn't bet that but you feel like that was a mistake now <laughs> yeah and i i'm probably without as being as smart i'm probably more of a peter brand than i am a billy bean but i what like i want to be billy bean so bad like just the way he like, <laughs> even if it's abrasive the way he deals with people just like honest and unmerciful like uh when he's teaching jonah hill how to fire people or let people go he goes, say, yeah. just go in and say, look, we traded you to the Tigers. Here's the traveling secretary's name. They'll get you arranged. Um, if you have any questions, give him a call. And Joan Hill goes, that's it. That's all you say. He goes, would you rather get a bullet to the head or five to the chest and bleed to death? <laughs> he goes, They're professional baseball players. They'll be fine. Um, you know, he just actually, like, I actually really, I like that they, that the movie kind of explored that because that's an aspect of sports that I never, ever even gave any kind of attention or appreciation to this idea of trading players and just, you know, when a player is with a team for a certain time, there is kind of a, an intangible sort of camaraderie that they feel. And then when you kind of just soullessly trade them to another team and just the, the psychological impact and just yeah. how difficult that conversation actually must be. I never, I never thought about that, but that's probably such, that's probably such a relevant thing to that is always happening in sports there's trades happening all the time and people who oh, don't yeah. want to be traded and you know you watch you know that famous press conference with wayne gretzky when he got traded to the la kings and he's weeping at the press conference right like for yeah, the longest yeah. time i was like what's what's he complaining about like he's gonna he's gonna get to live in la but you don't realize like he probably he forged a lot of really close friendships and right. you know roots in with edmonton so i yeah. i really appreciated that part of the film yeah. And he challenges him a bit when he said like, we're going to have to let you go. He goes, I just, and that they're acting it out, but Billy Bean is saying like, I just bought a house here. My kid's in school. Like yeah. she made friends yeah, already. Exactly. And it's like, you know, these guys are have, have lives and um, they do a really good job about that with um, Scott Hatterberg, the Chris Pratt character, because like goes to his house and they want him cause he gets on base. Um, that's all he does. He's a catcher who can't catch anymore. He can't throw. He's never played first base. They just want him for the, the on base percentage. And, uh, they go like, how's your arm? Uh, he goes, good. You know, it's good. Uh, I, I can't throw, I can't throw the ball at all, and they're <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they give him a chance and he's just so happy for the opportunity. Um, you know, like it is a big part of these guys lives and like getting the opportunity must be the most exciting thing in the world. And then to have it taken away oh or God. be sent down would be just like ripping your heart out. Um, you know, and the David justice, um, the guy they get from the Yankees, the older guy, he, uh, um, they're talking about like, I'm not paying you for the player you are. I'm or you, you were, I'm paying you for the player. You, um, you are now like they like value these guys the way they, they are. And he says like, I've never seen a GM talk to players like this. He goes, you've never had a GM that was a player. You know, like a lot of these guys are business people that love baseball and he, Billy Bean, like walks a pretty fine line between being this disruptor, but also completely understanding what these guys are going through. Like he didn't have the easiest path. And, 
Um, he, he, uh, when you look at basketball he, again, you look at how many successful coaches are former players like Steve Kerr, yeah. who's the coach of the Golden State, you know, played mm-hmm. for the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. And Steve Nash yeah. was recently just appointed the head coach of the Brooklyn, yeah. uh, the Brooklyn Nets. And yeah. it's because, yeah, the psychology of what players go through that's such an important part of being able to communicate what you want. Mm-hmm. Out of them. I, I think that I think even still that's probably something that's really, you know, uh, uh, underestimated. Yeah. Um, you know, they just, he does a really good job of, um, he's a, he's a professional at, at both things. He's trying really hard to wrap his head around this new baseball stuff, but he's got to deal with the, um, the actual day-to-day stuff. Like you remember he goes into the locker room and they're dancing after they lost and he like smashes the speaker. He goes, what does losing sound like? And he like throws the bat and he goes, that is what losing sounds like Like he's got to deal with the personalities and the whole business he's taking shit from the media and all of this stuff and uh this is i had a really um coincidence the way that my week played out um so i i it ended up not being a big deal but i sort of got into trouble earlier this week because i gave um students a story that was like a it was the telltale heart by edgar Allan poe and i i teach fifth grade and part of the story is the guy kills his landlord and he buries him under the floorboards and he's like driven crazy by the guilt yeah so i gave them the story because they wanted a horror story and i ended up getting a couple complaints from from parents being like i think this is like too violent um we don't think that they should be yeah and it was tough man because like you just like feel like people are on the outside criticizing you and in reality it was like they're questioning how well you can do your job, even though that wasn't what it was um, just a misunderstanding. And it ended up being fine, you know? Um, but I just think like, what would it be like being a baseball manager with the media coming after you? And you can yeah, see it um, yeah. with uh, when the team starts winning, all of the um, people in the media are saying like, look what art, how the manager's done with this team. He's got an imperfect roster, but he's turned it around and they still refuse to give Billy Bean any credit, you know? And that must mm-hmm. be so like, frustrating for him. Um, well, this is something you hear all the time with athletes. Like the media is cold to them sometimes, right? Oh yeah. As long as they're only concerned about the nerves that they're, that they're trying to push, even if it destroys an entire team. <laughs> yeah. No wonder they don't trust anybody. Like if you going to like no. sewer them at the earliest opportunity. Um, I don't think the daughter in this movie is very good, but I think the scenes between them are really, really good. And to make it a little bit personal, like Tuesday after I started getting these complaints, that was just about the worst day I've had as a teacher, like in my career, it was just like, I knew it wasn't a big deal, but it was like, it was so embarrassing and like stressful. And I just felt like I got hit by a truck when I came home. And one of the things that, and then I watched this movie on Wednesday to prepare for this. And it really rang in when the stuff he's got with his daughter you know, like I had the worst day Tuesday and I came home and then I need and Vivian to come home from work. And it's like, you know what? Who cares? Like, it's just a job. Like he, he stays on. in Oak. Yeah. yeah. Or not even life goes on. Everything is not only fine, it's better than fine. Cause I have mm. this here at home that kind of keeps you grounded. And that's exactly what the daughter does for Billy Bean in the movie. They don't say it explicitly, but like part of the reason he doesn't take the job in uh, Boston is because he's got a daughter that lives in Los Angeles. He's only in Oakland. It's like three hours away. If he goes to Boston, he's barely going to get to see her. So he stays probably partly for like, I want to win one in Oakland, but also, you know, he's got like this family here and it's like, what's more important than baseball. The only thing in his life more important than baseball is family. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when I I saw that, 
at the end how he says how he stays uh, with the Oakland. Hey guys, I was actually kind of torn. I when at the end where it's kind of up in limbo you don't really know is he going to go to boston because he gets he, uh, he has a conversation with jonah hill saying you're going to be the highest paid gm of in history or something like that i mean that's that's a hard thing it's always really refreshing when you hear stories of people who kind of choose their morality and their principles over money because it's such it's such an ideal idealistic thing that i think everybody strives for but it is ultimately you become a victim sometimes of the dollar of the dollar sign and mm-hmm. you know you, sometimes you just have to think practically but you know when i saw that yeah i thought it was because i agree i think the scenes where he's with his daughter particularly when she's when she picks up the guitar and she starts singing the song and brad pitt's acting in it is so good and you just see sort of like that, that glint in his eye of how proud he is of her and how excited he is to, to hear that story and mm-hmm. when he's kind of contemplating the decision in his head and the daughter you know makes that mixtape for him and he's listening to the same song and he's you know going through it in his head yeah it uh, it, it again the movie is just so good at, at making you feel exactly what uh, and you know brad pitt's acting as well it just does a really good job of putting you in that situation and thinking you know what would you do in that situation in that uh, in that uh, in that scenario and that's really cool that you were able to kind of you're able to kind of glean that into your own personal life in just yeah. this past week that's that's you know cool. father daughter stuff didn't mean anything to me until like the last two years because like you're not in that situation yeah. um so it's just a, like a different um like look into the the movie and uh he's i think he even says it at one point he says like um i made one decision for money and i promised i'd never do it again and he doesn't and he's still he's still the manager in oakland like i don't think he'll ever be uh let go um who knows um but he's he's still he's still there still trying to win they haven't won yet but <laughs> um so then wow <laughs> and part of the thing this is the the movie magic of this is like even if you look at the way they shot the the games, the Scott Hatterberg home run actually happened. That's such like a really cool sports scene when he hit that 11, nothing, they have the 11, nothing lead. He turns the car around. He goes back to the ballpark. Cause they're going to break the streak for the longest like win streak in American league history. And he goes to the games. Yep. He never goes to the games. He shows up and they start losing. And it's all of a sudden it's 11, 11. Um, and he just feels like he's jinxed the team. And then Hatterberg hits that home run. Um, one of the things that, it's probably pretty hard to notice unless you know like the backstory of how the actual team went. They really oversold how good the Moneyball guys were. Like that Hatterberg home run actually happened, but if you they have to call him in. Like he's not um, he's not playing in that game. They call him in to hit, so he's not playing for space. So right. even though he is supposed to be there ostensibly playing for space, even in the movie he's not playing. Art House still has him on the bench. Um, Chad Bradford really wasn't that successful a player. It was more that the idea was good rather than these guys actually panned out. Like the the players that kind of dragged them to the playoffs that year were the people who they had already on their roster that were the traditional baseball finds. The money guy or moneyball guys kind of supplemented them, but they definitely didn't come in and like completely take over the sport. So they make it seem like they were way more impactful players than they actually were. They focus a lot on the um the moneyball guys, but in reality, they're not actually like as big a contributors as they made it seem. Obviously, yeah. they have to do it for the movie and to hammer home the point. But uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of I mean, the uh, whole revisionism. Isn't the whole premise? Isn't the whole premise of the their whole philosophy is like, you know, we're not going to put all our stock into one player like Jambi. 
Um, but we're right. going to construct a number of players who have the stats that are equivalent to what Giambi would be putting up, right? Yeah, but they make it sound when they're talking about Chad Bradford, they say like he has the ability to be not only one of the best relief pitchers on our team, one of the best relief pitchers in baseball. Um, they make it sound like he's just oh, this hidden gem. Okay. And in reality, he's a, a he's worth way more than his salary. But the reason why his salary is so low is he's ultimately not that good. Um, I don't think it was ever borne out that any of these guys ended up being the best players in baseball. They were just better than average fines for what you were getting them for. Like they said, his contract should have been 3 million, but we can get him for 200,000. So it's not as, it's not as successful as they make it look like, I don't think those like Hatterberg and um, Jeremy Giambi and uh, Chad Bradford really had legs that lasted that long. I think it was sort of just a, it was more of a philosophical revolution than it was actually like here's guys coming out of nowhere, putting numbers on the field. Um, it was just right. a different way to, of, yeah. to think about it. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely a great, great movie. Um, I just love the Brad Pitt stuff. Him sitting in the stadium by himself when they're losing to the Yankees, he's just flipping <laughs> the radio on and off um, at the end of it the when he's trying to make his decision. Yeah. He goes out and he just like lies down on the field and he's just doing some stretching. Like he's such an old baseball player like he's still a jock really at heart and he just loves baseball and being there so much you know he's got all of these like old school baseball instincts but he's got all of these like new unprecedented decisions to make and the Um, movie is just also good it has it has some really sort of lighter moments like i wrote down on my notes here one of the points in the movie that made me laugh really hard is like there's a seemingly kind of throwaway scene where you know they're just about to kind of they're either they might be gearing up for like their first game after making all these making all these uh, trades and brad pitt goes up to jonah hill and just says this better work and jonah hill just kind of gives him this bewildered look like what you're putting this all on me and then just right away breaks attention saying, yeah just kidding and this kind of gives, yeah, him, yeah, yeah. gives him a little nudge on the shoulder i really like that uh, again <laughs> kind of a throwaway scene but I, I just i laughed a lot when i saw that yeah they have really good interplay and it's it's funny because you see billy bean's really critical of the scouts but you see him when they go to scott hatterberg's house trying to like play the scout he goes yeah you're not catcher anymore but good news is we want you to play first and he, Scott Hatterberg goes, I've never played first before. He goes, well, it's not that hard. Tell him wash. And then Ron Washington goes, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> goes, yeah. Well, any, any, anything worth doing is, and he's just like, he's being such a fucking snake oil salesman, but he can barely pull it off. Cause he so clearly doesn't believe in it's lying to these that, guys. It's something that only Brad Pitt can do that kind of just like that boyish charm, but at the same time being, a day. it's kind of like how Robert Downey Jr. is so good at playing Tony Stark, like you're kind of a douche, but you're kind of lovable at the same time. Like Brad Pitt is also able to flex that acting quality that a not a less skilled actor or a less, I don't know, talented actor. I don't know what it would be, but would, would pull that off and just come off as a douche. He comes off as a bit of a douche, but at the same time, like, it's just like, it's funny and charming at the same time. They're kind of like in Ocean's Eleven that we talked yeah. about last week. This isn't my theory, but I've heard people saying like, um, he's at his best when you can't tell if he's dumb or smart. You know, like he's so good as Billy Bean because you can't really tell if he's dumb or smart. Same thing with Seven. You know, he's got to get like the cliff notes for Dante's Inferno just to keep up with what's going on. Um, In uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's just kind of this airhead, but he's obviously got some sort of like inner depth or quality to him. Like he's really good at playing that line between somebody who's like better than they are actually living, but not quite as good as they could be. Sort of clueless, but there's a lot underneath the surface. Absolutely. Yeah, he's in another Michael Lewis movie, um, um, The Big Short, 
and he's just a character yes. actor in that one. He plays Ben Rhodes or not Ben Rhodes, Ben whatever, and he's just the guy that's like selling them, helping the guys sell their 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 stocks off. And again, he's so good at just being an unsuccessful but still a millionaire banker. <laughs> you know, like he's, he can <laughs> yeah. he can sell a billion dollars worth unassuming. of stocks. Yeah, but then he's, he's obsessed unassuming. with growing potatoes and all of this stuff. And like he's he's really he's in his like it's funny because he's probably a bit older now, but I would say he's probably in his prime acting between this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like you think Brad Pitt is like nineties icon, but 2011, 2019 is like probably like that's the the time frame I would take if I were to pick Brad Pitt. Well, I think Brad Pitt watch. is kind of a vic- I think Brad Pitt is a victim of his own appearance. Like I mean, I think a lot of people just see him as this you know this obviously very attractive actor who people kind mm-hmm. of it would be very easy to just cast him in all these romantic roles but he is actually a good actor like he knows how to he knows how to sort of become a role and not just not just be a, a sort of a one-trick pony when it comes to acting he like mm-hmm. he, he has some re- he has he has like a number of really good movies like we didn't even touch on like uh, like fight club or the curious case of benjamin button where he's fantastic yeah. in both of those as well and, mm-hmm. And no, he's definitely on that list. Yeah, he's he's quite good as it's really easy to imagine him as an ex jock. You know, he's still kind of obsessed with working out. He's yes. obviously got this like bit of an ego to him, but at the same time, he's like he is trying to push something new, and you can really see him kind of carrying the weight of it. He throws the stool out of his office, and it smashes the thing on the window. And <laughs> there's all these random outbursts of of anger. Um, you know, and it's it's so barely below the surface. Like he's talking to, he's trying to get um, Art Howe to play um, Hatterberg or Bradford or one of them, and he goes, "You don't, you, I make the the decisions. The field card's mine. You can't tell me who to play. I'm the manager." And he goes, "I want to see Bradford pitching in the seventh. And he goes, "He's a left-handed pitcher." He goes, "I don't care about lefty-righty matchups." And Art Howe's like, "Yeah, I do." And they kind of just, it's so tense. It's not violent, but it's so close to erupting into violence. And um, he just kind of packs up his stuff and he goes, great chat. Every time we talk, I'm reinvigorated by my love of the game. And he just like walks away. And it's like, just like such a fuck you to Art Howe. But he's like, just so barely keeping it in. And, you know, it, it bubbles up every once in a while. But yeah, you can see like, he's just got this like kind of sports energy underneath the the surface and is he's got to be better but he's, he's he can't be all the time yeah so highly recommend um both of these movies um again i think it's quite yes. funny we both picked sports movies um i guess it's a good thing that if i could pick anything else it wouldn't be like well you know what i really wish i were an accountant and i just picked the wrong career choice <laughs> if i'm gonna be anything that's not a teacher i had to pick shoot, the most outlandish wild it. thing i yeah. couldn't have ever imagined actually happening um and like and we said you're, you're a lot closer than me yours, but your selection is definitely much more grounded and realistic than mine <laughs> 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 there's 30 <laughs> managers on the planet <laughs> yeah okay there's 30 of these it's, guys it's more ever i guess i should say yours is more reasonable than mine i would your parents are probably much more happy to say hey mom i'm gonna be ambitious and try to become a gm then mom i'm gonna go and try and become a professional boxer <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> so i guess they're both unrealistic in their their own ways but um you know what, like we talked about the last four weeks have been kind of bogus categories, but this one, I think you really get what every time we finish a podcast, I either say like to you just afterwards, like, um, 
either we have to add more personal stuff or um, we did a good job of adding personal stuff. And (laughs) this were, I don't know what time we started recording, but our clocks at two hours and 40 minutes right now. Um, I, not all of that. Yeah. Not all of that is tape, but the reason why you can sit and talk about these things for two, almost three hours is like, regardless if I'm not a baseball player and you're not a professional fighter, you know, like it's the stuff that keeps you going, um, personally, like you have these relationships, things that really are, um, not just things you like, but things you love, I guess. Um, you know, and you you see that Adonis Creed and you see that in Billy Bean and, um, you know, it's, we're, we're not, and we'll never be those guys, but I think there's a lot of, things we either are like that we can take away on a lesser degree or things that we wish we were like and just keep trying to <laughs> to, to I be would like love that. to have the body of Adonis Creed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um okay, so we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um this is again, we'll see how long it is when we're done, but I don't think there was uh like I don't think there's any wasted space in in that um that podcast because these are things obviously both of us are quite quite passionate about and um, if you haven't seen either of these don't be like johnny and ignore my recommendation watch uh (laughs) watch moneyball Moneyball, watch moneyball for sure that is a movie that it might not seem appealing to you but believe me it's even if again if you're thinking to yourself you're not a baseball guy you're not into all of this that we just talked about it's just an it it is a really entertaining and fun to watch and I, i highly recommend and if you're not into boxing, you think it's too violent, I'd still say give Creed a try. It's probably worth a watch. and um, Or it's definitely <laughs> definitely worth a watch. Um, so check those out, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Yeah.